Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Now we don't have Carl Havens with us this week, but we do have Johnny Sisson in Chicago. Hello Johnny. Hello. And seeing that we failed to get a guest on last week's show, uh, we thought we'd actually put two guests just in case, so, so at least we're going to get one of them to turn up and I'm glad to say we've actually got both of them here. Um, and now then, these guests pretty much fall into the category of Johnny's Heroes. And we've had uh, Johnny's Heroes um, in some of the earlier podcasts. And uh, one of those heroes is back with us again today. And he's dragged along with him another hero for, of Johnny. So I'm going to hand over to Johnny. He can do some better in- introductions than I can manage. Absolutely. Well, uh, joining us today, we have uh, re- returning with us today, we have uh, Mr. Mike Ekman, uh, MikeEckman.com. Uh, we've, we've talked with Mike in the past about cameras and lenses and all that good stuff. Um, I, I, I'm happy to say I know Mike personally, too, and he stops in and we chat at the camera shop once in a while, um, try to find some some good things for Mike in the basement every once in a while. Um, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan of basements of camera shops. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, right? I don't know why, but I'm thinking uh, of the, the, the basement in Pulp Fiction at the moment, but I'm sure it's different to that. Yeah. No, much different than that. Yeah, yeah. Much, much, much different than that. Um, and uh, But also joining us today is, is someone that um, Mike has actually um, – uh, talked with quite a bit and interviewed on his website. Someone I, I have also met in person as well. Um, and someone I've, I really wanted to have on the podcast here, really honestly from the start, um, because he has a, uh, I get to say unique knowledge base would be uh, um, diminishing just how, how much he knows. So we're talking about Bob Rodoloni, um, who is the uh, president of uh, the Nikon Historical Society and the author of the complete Nikon rangefinder system. And probably I would say, I don't know if anyone has anywhere near the knowledge base on anything Nikon that Bob has. So, um, I, you know, I, I've talked with him in the past, and I, I, I love hearing his stories. And I thought that uh, our audience would would love knowing some more about the background of, of Nikon and about um, cameras and lenses, etc. So that's what we are going to do today. Um, so what I wanted to do then is hand it over to to Mike, um, and and Mike, you could uh, perhaps do a little bit more introduction here with Bob, and then we'll get rolling with some questions. Yeah, thanks, hey, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back. Um, I, I looked last time I was on the show it was episode seventeen, so this is uh, fifty-one. Uh, so a lot of time has passed. But um, uh, as Johnny had mentioned, I'm here with Bob Rodoloni. Um, he is um, a graduate of Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. He's a lifelong photographer. He's a lifelong pharmacist, um, and a lifelong and uh, perhaps the the world authority on Nikon and Nikon history. Um, he's written several books. Uh, I'm holding in front of me the complete Nikon rangefinder system book that um, Johnny had mentioned. And this is, um, I believe, is this the third edition, Robert? Yeah, that's the third one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this thing, whether you have an appreciation for Nikon or Nikon rangefinders, and you you should, but um, even if that's not your particular niche, if you have any interest in any level of photography, film, camera related, this book is just impressive, even looking at it. It's 528 pages. It's hardbound, high quality paper. I mean, you could 
you could do some damage if you were to drop this thing on your foot or something. <laughs> it, we- it weighs uh, five and a half pounds. Yeah. So so shipping on this thing to even order online is um, probably quite expensive. How many pictures are in this book, Bob? There's, there's, there's 1,350 black and whites, and then there's 24 pages of color plates. Yeah. I mean, this thing is just... You you would it would take me a year or more just to even absorb through the first read the information on here from history to all the different variations. If you find a rare rangefinder that you want you know more information on, it will be in here. Um, and and again, this is just the rangefinders. This this doesn't even touch at all the the F the Nikon F SLR or anything that they made you know after the rangefinders. So so yeah, he's. He's got an impressive amount of uh, of information. Even during our sound check earlier, um, <laughs> we had to, we had to slow up because we hadn't started recording yet. So um, yeah, it's it's a pleasure to be here. You know, just every time I talk to Robert, my wife has to start calling me and threatening me with divorce to get me to come back home uh, because it, like it, when you're just around somebody with this level of knowledge, it's just super cool. Um, but yeah, so you know, just wanted to say hi to Robert and um, you know, hello. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Hey. So, so Robert, you're the president and uh, founder of the Nikon Historical Society. Do you want to maybe just start off with, you know, how you got involved with that? I mean, what made you want to, you know, put so much effort into one company like this? Well, I first I started to collect this stuff in 1971. And in, in the 70s, uh, I knew three or four or five collectors here in the States, a few in Japan. But we were just a loose-knit group. And then I did my first book uh, in 1981, which I self-published right here in the Chicago area. Um, And it sold out very quickly and uh, only had like 1,200 printed. And one of my biggest customers was Whole Photo Books, uh, Derek Grossmark in in England. And um, when he went to reorder another 100 copies, I didn't have any left. And he said, oh, I wish you would have come to me. I would have liked to have published it, which I never thought of. So he said, are you wanting to do another one? I said, yeah, a bigger one with more in it. And he said, okay, we'll do it. So the second book came out in 83, published by Whole Photo Books. But in the meantime, uh, I had in the back of my head, you know, Leica had its own society. Zeiss had its own society. I think even Roley had a society. And I thought to myself that, um, you know, I think it's about time that Nikon had its own collector society. So I started to contact some of the people I knew in 1982 and then the book came out in 83 and I just sent out a form letter to about 100 about 60 people that I knew personally that might be interested and lo and behold 50 of them were so I started a society uh, in 1983 the very first issue came out in September of 1983 and I just shipped out two weeks ago issue number 142 so we've been doing this for over 35 years it's a quarterly magazine. I'm now working on number 143. So the society started in 1983. It's still going strong. I've got members all over the world, actually. In the magazine, I've never missed an issue so far. And um, we're a good group. And we, we got together. Uh, we're not quite like the Leica group or the Zeiss group. We're a little bit more social. And um, we have semi-annual convention. We just had number 16 so we've been doing that for 33 years or 30 years, whatever. And um, it's uh, something that just became all-consuming, as a matter of fact. Um, my hobby has actually taken over my life. I, my life was, was my job and my hobby, and there was nothing else, no room for anything else. But uh, uh, 
kept me sane, though. I had a job that was a very stressful job. When I'd come home at night, if I didn't have my hobby, I would have gone crazy. But um, I've been in photography. I had my first darkroom when I was 12 years old. So I've been in photography for a long time. I'm now 70. So, you know, it's a long time to be in photography. If somebody was interested in, in joining the Nikon Historical Society, what are their fees or how would they go about doing that? Just contact me, uh, basically just on my on my email, which is just my last name at msn.com. And uh, just, you know, say you're interested. And dues on, in the United States and Canada are $40 a year. Um, overseas is $50 a year for all four issues. And they're all mailed, you know, air mailed to Europe and that and Southeast Asia and first class here in North America. So uh, it's uh, it's easy to do. I mean, there's, there's nothing to fill out. You just send me a, a note with your address and whatever. You can use PayPal if you want it to, to pay your dues or send me a check, either one. And uh, you're in. And so it's as simple as that. But, uh, go ahead. You had said that you started collecting in 1971. What was your first Nikon? Well, actually, my first Nikon... Well, first of all, I started with the Fs, okay, of course. Um, uh, being in photography at, at that point in time, the rangefinders, I didn't even know about them yet. I mean, the F was the king, okay. I can remember when I was in high school just dreaming about owning an Icon F. But anyway, I went to college uh, in the fall of 66, and uh, there was a nice store there in the, in the Des Moines area. I got to know them all pretty well, and... In March of 67, or it was the second semester of my freshman year, I bought my first Nikon F. And um, a fellow I knew worked for the yearbook, the, the, the Drake yearbook, and he needed some help to shoot an event that called the Drake Relays, which is the second largest uh, relay event in, in North America after the one at Penn State. So he needed some help. And uh, I said, okay, I'll help you. Well, they used 10 of my pictures and only seven of his, so he was kind of upset with me. But anyway... Uh, the yearbook people said, are you coming back next year? And I said, well, I'm in pharmacy, so that's five years. I'll be here another four more years. Look this up when you get back. So I came back in September. They hired me. And for three years, I did the yearbook all by myself. But anyway, I made a lot of money, bought a lot of cameras. Uh, unfortunately, the F is a little bit too loud for certain things. If you're shooting a play, if you're shooting meetings or whatever, the F was, you know, it, it just went off with a loud bang sometimes. So I knew about the rangefinders. I'd heard about them. I went into my local store, my local haunt, and they had just taken in an SP on trade. And I looked at it, and the SP and the F have 96, something like 95% of the same parts. Okay, they're interchangeable almost. And the operating is exactly the same. All the, all the operating procedures are exactly the same. So I bought it, and that would have been in uh, 1969. That was my first rangefinder. I bought an SP with a 1.4, and I bought it to shoot things where I had to be quiet. And it worked perfectly. I shot plays. I shot meetings, etc. Uh, and then about six months later, I walked into that store again, and they had just taken in an S3 on trade with a 1.4, which I bought. So when I graduated in, in, the, in the spring of 71, I had a bunch of Fs, all kinds of Fs, but I had these two rangefinders. And I just started to wonder about them because they were basically discontinued before I really got much into photography. The last rangefinders came off the line in 64, okay, so when I was still in high school. Um, so I just started uh, to do research, and that's when I first started. I went up, I started with uh, the Chicago Public Library, went up there for days after day after day, and I just uh, 
read every magazine they had on file at that library, which was a huge library. And that's when it started. So actually, the, the actual collecting effort started in the summer of 71. And I've been doing it ever since. So. A long time. Yeah. So um, for people who uh, you know, maybe some younger listeners or people who just don't have a lot of background on Nikon, um, the F made its debut in 1959. Um, it you know, quickly became the the preferred choice of the professional photographer. It was very expensive upon its release. Um, why or how was Nikon able to you know do so well so quickly? Um, you know, it it doesn't seem like there's ever been a period of time where they weren't industry leaders. And you know, there certainly wasn't a shortage of other Japanese companies at that time. I mean, Canon had been making products and, you know, Minolta and Olympus and, and pretty much all of the, the brand names that um, you still hear about today, they existed back then, you know, not to mention the Germans had been making cameras since before the war, but um, you know, after world war two, Nikon just seemed to appear out of nowhere. I mean, you know, like, how, how were they able to accomplish that? Well, they didn't really appear out of nowhere. They actually were founded in July of 1917, so they just celebrated their 100th year, okay? But they were founded by a Japanese admiral, and they were very tight with the military uh, segment of the Japanese economy before the war. They did not sell to the general public. They only sold to the military to the scientific and industrial complexes only. They made things that were usable by science. They made microscopes. They made telescopes. They made all transits, everything that you can imagine. Uh, and they made all this stuff for the, the Japanese military, Navy, Air Force, and, and Army. They were the preferred. They were the in guys. Okay, In Japan, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And they were the in group because they were tied up with the Navy. And they got all the contracts, okay? So before World War II, they were basically unknown even to the Japanese public because nothing that they made was for sale in any store anywhere. It was all being sold directly uh, to the science or whatever, military, etc. It wasn't until the two fellas who were designing the, what became the Hansa Cannon in the early 30s um, got into a problem. The, the fellow who first who actually designed the camera, Yoshida, he was an engineer, and he knew nothing about optics, so he designed the camera. Okay, he did the camera, but he didn't know anything about optics. His partner, the money man, who knew nothing about cameras, was a guy by the name of Ushida. And they were at a, they now had to figure out what to do about optics. Well, uh, fortunately, Ushida, the money man, his brother-in-law was in the Japanese Navy and actually knew the people who ran Nippon Kogaku. And he said, well, maybe I can get them to make something for you. And one thing led to another. And finally, Yoshida and Yoshida, both of them, it's hard. They, their names are different, but they sound alike. They went and they met with the people at, at Nippon Kukaku and at the factory in, in Shinagawa section of Tokyo, showed them the camera, the prototype, told them what they needed. And Nippon Kukaku agreed to provide all the optical parts of the camera. And so in 19, by 1935 or so, when the Hansa Canon was released, you had a camera that had everything under the top deck and the way a glass was made by Nikon. The entire rangefinder and viewing system was Nikon. The lens, of course, was a Nikon. Uh, they had already developed uh, a 3.5, which was an Almar copy. Um, 
and they also had an F2. They even had an F15 and a 2.8. So these lenses were all available, uh, already designed. They just had to remount them to put them on the Hansa Cannon. They also designed the mount of the Hansa Cannon. As a matter of fact, the only place on that camera where they're identified is on the bottom of that mount. It says Nippon Kugaku. They designed that mount. The problem was that because of lights patents, they had to come up with a way to to to, to uh, couple the lens, and they couldn't use the the wheel that Leica used. A guy by the name of Yamanaka, who worked for Nippon Kugaku, was given the task of finding a way to couple those lenses without interfering with the patent. He came through with the pin design, which goes through the body, etc., which was totally unique, and they they were able to make the camera. So that was the only thing before World War II that Nippon Kugaku ever made that was eventually sold to the public, okay? And they just, they would, uh, uh, Canon would send over the bodies and Nikon would put all their parts in it and send it back to Canon and then they would box it up and sell it. So that was the only commercial product they ever made. They were unknown even to their own people. When World War II hit, because of their tight um, relationship with the Navy, etc., during the war, they went up to something like 20, 21 factories and over 26,000 employees. And they made every conceivable thing that the military would ever need. The bomb sites that were used at Pearl Harbor were made by Nippon Kugaku. The submarine periscopes were made by Nippon Kugaku. Something like 80% of all the binoculars were made by, including the big battleship binoculars, which were the most accurate and, and best binoculars ever made. Even our own Navy couldn't make them that good. Um, all the gun sites, et cetera, et cetera, trench sites, et cetera, everything that was optical that was made for the Japanese military was made by Nippon Kagaku, except Tokyo Kagaku, which is Top Gun, was number two. They made about 20%. So during the war, Nikon was going full steam. Everything they sold, everything they made was sold automatically. They made binoculars by the thousands and thousands. They developed a system where they had women doing it, of course, because men were at the, at the, at the front. They came up with interchangeable parts, just like Colt did with his, with his guns. They would make these binoculars with parts that would just, they'd just put them together and it would work perfectly, prisms, etc. And um, then the war ended. Now what do you do? Well, they were reduced to one factory, Ojai, which is in Senegal, and they were reduced to 1,500 people. And the way the occupation worked at that point in 1940, late 45, early 46, if you wanted to make something, it had, you had to get permission from GHQ, from MacArthur and the boys. You had to get permission to get on the list of companies to get the raw materials because raw materials were so hard to come by. And then you had to show them what you were going to make. And it had to be strictly non-military. Well, Nippon Kagaku because of its military connections, was one of the companies that the GHQ was going to shut down entirely. They had this vendetta against all the major companies that made things for the military, and Nikon was on their list. Um, so they started to make, the only thing they could make was they made eyeglasses, believe it or not, spectacles, which they had made before the war, which was a civilian product. And then they also took all those leftover parts of those binoculars that they'd never assembled, put them together, marked them made in occupied Japan and sold them to the troops. And that's what kept them in business. They started to design their, their first camera, 
in 46. The actual drawings were done by September of 46, which of course became the Nikon 1. However, because of all kinds of problems, because they'd never made a camera, okay? Because of all kinds of problems. That camera did not come off the production line until March of 48. So they had almost a two-year incubation period. And even when it came off the line, finally in 48, they had still had problems with them. Um, they weren't used to making things for commercial purposes. They had no way of distributing it. They had no way. They didn't know how to sell anything. They had no retail experience whatsoever. Uh, the fact that they even survived is a miracle because uh, they just didn't have uh, the resources. But that's they did not really come out of nowhere. They were there. They just were invisible. So, they, so they were founded in 1917. You said right. as uh, the supplier for the Japanese military. You'd said something like 80 percent of their products were used yeah. throughout that time. Yeah. Um, but I find it really interesting, though, that you know today Nikon and Canon are, are you know primary competitors to one another. But right. really, without without Nikon, which back then you had mentioned is Nippon Kugaku, um, what does that translate to actually? Japan, Japan optical. That's all it means. Okay. Nippon Kugaku so, just means Kugaku's optical. Nippon is Japan. It just means Japan yeah. optical. So it, it's uh, it, their name was rather generic as the Japanese optical yeah. company, and uh, they right. made products for the military. Um, they helped, you know, Canon basically get off the ground. So earlier you had said that um, Nikon had designed a lot of the parts for Canon's first camera, which was called the Hansa Canon. But I'm really interested in the mount that you said that they, they had designed. Was this a completely unique mount that they had designed from the ground up? Well, that's a funny story about that mount. If you look at that mount, it looks to be unique. However, if, if you've ever held a Hansa Canon in your hand, they, only, they didn't make interchangeable lenses. They only made the normals, but they did have the capability of interchanging the lenses. And the way you mount and dismount those lenses is exactly the same way as you do on a contacts. It's a bayonet, okay? You got the little tab that, that locks the lens in position. You push the tab in, you turn the lens, and it pops off. So in essence, that mount is really a camouflaged contacts mount, okay? Oh. And which is interesting because when they eventually made their own camera after the war, they chose the contacts mount to make them. They did that to differentiate themselves from everybody else who was making screw mounts. They didn't want to be part of the, the pack. So they came out with, they, they chose the contacts mount. But that mount was actually a camouflaged contacts mount. And they made that whole mount in their factory. And they had all kinds of problems. Being German, uh, or German derived, I should say, it's grossly overcomplicated, okay? You know how the Germans do things. If, if somebody can do it with 12 parts, they have to use 24, okay? It, that's just the way they are. And their stuff is elegant, but it's over-engineered. And that mount was so difficult to make, so much lathe work involved, that if you look at even Peter Deckard's book on the cannons, he'll tell you how many gaps there are in the serial numbers of those mounts because so many of them were rejected. They had a huge rejection rate, okay? So the mount was very difficult. Nikon made that whole entire mount for them, which incorporated that special coupling mechanism that Yamanaka had come up with to bypass the lights um, patents. And, of course, they made the lenses. And then they made everything underneath uh, the top plate, in other words, the, the rangefinder and the viewfinder, et cetera, and the pop-up uh, little viewfinder, too. So they had um, a little bit of experience with these mounts, and you oh, said yeah. they 
they designed the rangefinder. They had done the optics. So fast forwarding um, to after the war, when they had come up with their first version of the rangefinder, um, to somebody who's maybe not a Nikon expert or doesn't have a lot of experience with vintage cameras, a at a quick glance, Nikon rangefinders do resemble contacts cameras. But um, and obviously they share you said a very similar mount, but what's different about the mount used on the Nikons versus a genuine Zeiss contacts? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. The, mount, the mounts are, um, the only thing that's different is that the lenses rotate in the opposite direction. Okay. Nikon is always ro rotated opposite of what Leica and Zeiss rotated, which people seem to complain about, but I don't know why. But anyway, that's the only, that's the only real difference. If you look at the two mounts, they are externally identical. Okay, they are almost internally identical, but not a hundred percent. They're only like ninety-nine percent identical. There is a slight error that Nikon made when they designed their Nikon One, and it dates back to what they thought was the focal length of the sonar, which is what their lenses were based on, was the sonar formulas. They they were wrong when they computed the actual focal length of this fifty-one fifty f two sonar. Which, because of the way that mount's designed, the pitch and whatever it has, you know, the lens itself doesn't have a focusing mount. It's all done on the mount, on the camera mount. When they designed their mount, the, the, their geometry was off a little bit. And the results were, is that with wide angles, which have depth of field, and the normals, which are using that internal mount in the, in the camera, there was no, no focusing error. However, when you got to the telephotos, especially the 85F2, which is fairly fast, the error that would enter in, which was so small, would, if you shot an F2 at, say, 10 feet, taking somebody's portrait, you might notice that their nose is in focus, but their eyelashes aren't, or vice versa. It was a very tiny difference, but enough to where Nikon actually ended up making their telephoto lenses in both mounts. They made a contacts mount. Uh, 85, 105, and 135, and actually has a C engraved on the side of the barrel, which designates it as a contacts mount because the helix is different. They had to cut the helix a little bit differently. The angle of the helix, the pitch, was a little bit differently. So that, that general belief that you're not supposed to swap uh, Zeiss and Nikon lenses is, is really only applies to the telephotos. Telephotos, and only if you're going to shoot relative. In other words, if you're going to take a 135 sonar, and throw it on a, on a Nikon, and you're going to go out and you're going to shoot at infinity, which is what you're going to do most of the time anyway, or beyond 20 or 30 feet. You're not going to see any error. If you're going to take somebody's portrait, you're going to see it. Okay. I see. And the wide angles, of course, have enough depth of field that it doesn't show up at all. Okay. But uh, the lenses are physically interchangeable. But Nikon, being conscientious like they are, they actually made the telephotos in a separate series of mounts designed just for the contacts, even though most people didn't know why. So anyway, that mount was, that mount was something that they had to, to, to develop um, to bypass, of course, the, the Leica screw mount. And they ended up using it themselves, and it became a problem after the war, too. But the, the Nikon is not a contacts copy, okay? When, when Nikon decided to make a camera, of course, there already were screw mount cameras being made. Canon was already in business. Leotax was already in business. Uh, Nikka was already in business as the Nippon, et cetera. There were, and Mamiya was already, uh, various companies were already making screw mount like uh, copies because all the German patents were out the window after the war. Nikon decided that, um, 
or their engineers decided they wanted to make a camera because they had to make something civilian orientated and cameras were the best thing to make. Um, so they decided they were going to make it something a little bit different. They didn't want to be part of the group. They wanted to be different. You know, they were a very rather arrogant company because they had been so well connected before the, you know, before the wars. So when they sat down and designed their camera, Fukeda and the boys, uh, sat there and started making their drawings. They decided that at that time in the world, the two best cameras, 35 millimeter cameras in the world, of course, were the Leica in the context. There was no competition. So he looked at the two cameras, took them apart, looked at their various features. They decided the following. They liked the removable back because the Leica back is a disaster. Okay. Always was and always will be. Uh, you cannot clean the inside of a Leica like you can when you take off the back of a Contax. Um, so they liked the removable back. They liked the shape of the camera. They felt that it was more grippable because of the camfered corners. And, of course, they wanted the bayonet mount as opposed to the Leica screw mount. And since they were making the bayonet mount, it kind of fits into that nice front plate rather well as opposed to putting it on a, a Leica-type uh, body. So, uh, And all the controls were on the top, which was contacts-like. Uh, even their shutter speeds, both their shutter speeds were on the top. And the back came off the same way with, with the locks, et cetera, et cetera. So externally, the camera looked just like a contacts, which it was from the outside, except they were smart enough and, and even had the focusing wheel like the contacts. But, of course, the Nikon was a little bit smarter. They put that, that uh, rangefinder window where your finger wasn't over it all the time. Uh, they moved it over a little bit, which Slice never did. But anyway, inside... They looked at it from an entirely different point of view. Now you're looking at at uh, engineering, you're looking at production, you're looking at parts, et cetera, et cetera. The first thing they nixed was the contacts rangefinder system. That long optical tube that they used and everything else was so expensive and so hard to make. They said, this is, this is ridiculous. They went with Leica's rangefinder system, which was very simple and elegant, very few moving parts, and usually didn't break unless you dropped the camera. Their second choice was the shutter. The shutter of the Leica was gorgeous. It was it was the most beautiful. It was one of those designs that was was perfect from day one. Okay, the contact shutter, even Zeiss couldn't make that thing right. Okay, uh, <laughs> twice as many parts that would ever need. Uh, it over-engineered, broke down tremendously. If, if ten percent of all pre-war contacts and early post-war contacts are still working today, I'd be surprised. And it was also too hard to make. They, they, they just knew they couldn't do it. They just physically knew they were not capable of doing it. So they chose the, the Leica shutter, simple shutter, which they made all the way through the F2, by the way, was still the Leica shutter. Even the, even the, the uh, curtains are interchangeable on the rangefinder Leicons with the Leicas. Okay? People don't realize that. The dimensions were all the same. So they chose the shutter and they chose the rangefinder. In other words, the guts of the camera or Leica, which was a much more simple and elegant design. and uh, But it looked like a contact. So it was actually a hybrid. And uh, their choices were extremely well done. In other words, they, they picked the right features of both cameras to come up with their camera. And it made it unique amongst all other Japanese copies. Uh, and uh, not part of, the, not part of the, the crowd, the herd. So that's how it came about. And it's so... Technically, it looks like a context, but it's really a Leica. <laughs> wow. 
uh, Bob, um, along those lines, I have a, I have a question for you about uh, yeah. S-mount lenses. But I, I did want to say, it, it's funny, this conversation comes up from time to time um, <laughs> where pe- people say, well, what's what's the best model of uh, contacts to get? And it's like, well, it's really a get a Nikon because it's going to, it's, it's actually going to work and it's more, it's, and a Kiev, you could probably buy four or five of them and you might get one that works. But if you get a Nikon, you're going to basically get a refined, you know, contacts camera. That's going to actually work. It's going to work because it's based on that Leica shutter, which we all know lasts forever. Right. right? Yeah. And I have, I actually have in front of me, let's, I'm just going to whine so we can listen to it. Click. So I have in front of me a, um, a Nikon S2 that I actually got from from Bob directly myself. Um, and on this Nikon S2, uh, it has a 35 uh, f2.5 lens with an EP mount on the uh, latch that connects it to the mount. So I know that the lens made its way back to the U.S. probably via somebody who bought it in Japan at a PX, right? Yes. Um, and, yeah, and and so, and the other thing that I have in front of me, just apropos of our, our conversation, is I have a Canon uh, uh, 4SB2, and on that camera, I have a Nikon 50mm F2 lens, mm-hmm. um, which actually, I originally got this, this, this lens came on a, tower camera which is actually a nika <laughs> so yes, I, yeah so I, I so i have this really interesting lens that it came off a um a, a nikon copy and is now on a canon screw mount which in a lot of ways i think the canon screw mount cameras are improvements on the leica screw mount cameras but my <laughs> where i'm going with this question is um these are two really nice lenses the one lens that i do not have that i would love to have in either uh LTM or or um, S mount would be the uh, 105 uh, 2.5 uh, lens, um, and it, and it kind of brings me to this question, which is, um, it, as you said, I mean, it, Nikon was originally a, a, a an optical maker versus a a, a camera maker, um, and I I think that there were some really key lenses as well as cameras that that post-war really cemented their reputation and if my understanding is correct um you know the lens that i have the the 50 millimeter f2 was essentially an improvement on the original uh contacts uh sonar design and then the other lens that i that i i find really notable is that that 105 millimeter lens which i have heard said was was really a, a focal length that Nikon kind of made its own. I mean, um, Leica did not really have, I mean, they did, but they, they didn't really make a lens in that focal length. That was a, um, a lens that was a huge popular seller or that they made a lot of. So I, my question is to get roundabout to it is, are there lenses that you feel or that you could tell us were particularly commercially successful um, and really did help to cement that reputation um, of of Nikon as a lens builder, you know, in the rangefinder era, then carrying forward into the F the F camera era. Okay, here we go. Uh, first of all, um, the three point five collapsible Nikkor that was used on the Hansa and also on many many of the post war Nikas and and towers and of course Canons. A lot of people would 
you find a lot of Nikon lenses on Canon's. You even find them on Leicas because people like them better than they did the, the home brand. But anyway, that 53.5 was, of course, uh, basically a takeoff on the Almar. And it was designed before the war in the 30s by their main lens designer, a guy by the name of Sunoyama, who died relatively young. I think he died even before the war. But um, uh, he wasn't very happy with the design. It wasn't quite as good as the Almar. So he kept working. And then he got into the sonar. He, he, he preferred the Zeiss. So the F2, pre-war F2s, which were collapsible lenses, and the and the 2.8, which was a collapsible, uh, and even a 4.5, believe it or not. These were all lenses that were available on the Hansa, and they were all collapsible. But those last three were basically Zeiss optical formulas, not Leica. Leica was really not very good with lenses. Uh, Leica didn't really mm-hmm. make any decent lenses until the Summicrons came out in the 50s. Um, they were second-rate compared to Zeiss. Zeiss's lenses were far superior to Leica. Um, so Nikon ended up copying Zeiss formulas more than they did Leica formulas. Um, so when their cameras first came out, the two choices, the only two choices, was the 53.5 collapsible, which is very rare. They made less than 100 of them in Nikon mount. Okay, The rest were in screw mount. They're all over the place in screw mount because of all those Nikas and all those towers, etc. But in Nikon mount, they only made about 100 of them. And the F2 collapsible, which are at least four different formulas over the time. They kept improving and changing as they came up with better glass, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so those are the only two things you could buy. Um, the F2s uh, were okay for their era. They were fine. Uh, soft coating, so they scratched easy, et cetera, et cetera. And all collapsible lenses, as far as I'm concerned, cannot be as precise as a rigid lens simply because they're collapsible. There's play in there. But anyway, their first rigid lens was the 51.5, which came out in early 1950, which, of course, was a a takeoff on the sonar. It was okay. It was a good lens. But at the same time, that that, actually, the day that came out, they were already working on the 1.4. When the 1.4 came out in late 1950, in other words, the 1.5 was made for less than a year, when the 1.4 came out in late 1950, the first Nikon ads were the world's first lens faster than F1.5. I mean, that's how they actually advertise it. But that 1.4 was a far superior lens to the 1.5. Totally different formula. And it was made up until 1964. So it obviously got better. Wow. It got better and better and better. The coatings got better. The optics changed. They always improved their glasses. They never told you. They would just do it. Nikon never, unlike Canon, who made a new model every time they changed the location of a screw, Nikon didn't, <laughs> didn't even announce when it was doing things differently. You just, all of a sudden, you would buy an item that was better and didn't know why. Okay, But they did this constantly. They were constantly upgrading. Uh, and they were glass technologists. In other words, they had something like 200 different kinds of glass by the time they were done. Okay, and Nikon, like Lights, was an optical firm before they were a camera company, and even Zeiss was an optical firm first before they got into cameras. So their 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 heritage was in optics, and during the war, most of what they made was optically based. Okay, of course they made all the metal parts, et cetera, et cetera, to house it, but it was all optical based, and they made the best. Okay, so. Uh, they were ready to make the lenses. They had all kinds of problems with the cameras. They just, they just had all kinds of problems. But anyway, but they were optically, they were their lenses from day one were perfect after World War after World War Two. Um, 
they also had a, an inspector by the name of Watanabe. Uh, of course, it's long gone now, but Watanabe was the lens inspector. Watanabe insisted on 100% inspection, which is unheard of uh, even back then. Okay, Every single lens that Nikon made up until about 1957 was tested before it was boxed or tested before it was put on a body. Every single lens had 100% inspection. No junk ever got out of that factory because they knew that they were going to compete with the Germans, which they had to do. They were going to take the market away from the Germans or even sell in competition to the Germans because they had to be better. Just like Avis, they had to be better. Okay. <laughs> so they tried harder and they had 100% inspection. Nothing went out of that building that wasn't perfect when it left the factory, optic wise. The bodies were another story. But anyway, uh, so then the, the, the 3535 actually dates back to pre-war. They, were, they made one for the Hansa Cannon, of which only one lens exists. It's in the JCI Museum in Tokyo. It's a 3535. Um, and then they came out with a, a 135 F4, which was a fabulous, just better than the, than the sonar, okay? and better than anything lights made. Eventually upgraded it to a 3.5. When David Douglas Duncan went to Korea, to shoot This Is War, he went with two Leica 3Cs, and one of them had a 51.5 on it, the other one had a 135 F4. That entire book is shot with Nikkor lenses. Not a single Leica lens was used to shoot that book. He left all his Leica lenses at home. However, to me, my feeling is that the best lens they made at that point in time was the 85 F2. The lens that June Mickey used to shoot David Douglas Duncan's picture at the Life magazine office about a month before Korea was a Leica 3C with an 85F2 Nikkor on it. He came back the next day. It was all shot with available light. He came back the next day with prints and he gave them to Duncan. And Duncan looked at him and he was just amazed at the sharpness of these pictures. And he said, where'd you get that lens? And he looked at it. No one ever heard of it. Okay. All the photographers there, Bristol, um, uh, Horace Bristol and Duncan and, and, and even, even June Mickey used German cameras and German lenses. Okay. He said, well, it's just made about three miles away from here. He said, well, let's go. So they, they went. They went to the factory and they picked out uh, lenses and they went to Korea, which broke out like a week later. They went to Korea with Japanese lenses. And of course, the rest is history. But the thing is that 85 F2 to me was... An absolutely perfect lens. Um, mm. The best portrait lens they ever made. It would eventually be overshadowed by the 105, but I think that's unfortunate because as far as I'm concerned, the 85 is better as far as portraits are concerned. The 105 is a little too long, and I've owned them both in both rangefinder and reflex mount for years. Okay, So mm. the 85 F2 during the actual early rangefinder era, which would be from 48 to about 52, you had... 53.5, the 50F2, the 35.35, the 85F2, and the 135. The best out of that whole group was the 85F2, which uh, is probably even brought up by the market. In other words, they sold thousands of them, and at least half of them are in like a screw mount. At least half of them are in like a screw mount. So 
half of those 85 F2s ended up on screw mount bodies. And I'm sure a lot of Malika screw mount bodies. So, Johnny, you, you know, you... (laughs) You work in the store there, and you know Robert's talking about how much he likes the 85 millimeters. I think the only negative about the 85 millimeter is that everybody knows that they're good. So, am I correct in saying that they they usually have quite a high price tag when they go up for sale? Was that to them? me, Mike? I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Was that to me? That was to you. I can, I was. I could. Yeah, I can barely hear any any anybody today. It's breaking up so bad. Um, I can yeah, I can jump back in uh, and answer that one. Go ahead. I was the question was, um, you know, Robert had said that he really loves the eighty five millimeters, but the one hundred fives are are pretty good too. But at, with your experience working at the store, though, don't the eighty five millimeters fetch quite a premium over you know the other lenses? They they do, um, and uh, honestly, we don't even see the the eighty five Nikkor all that often. Uh, it doesn't. I mean, it it doesn't. It's not a super common lens to show up in the shop. Um, but okay. yeah, when it does, it's definitely a premium lens, and I I think that that bears out uh, in prices online in the online marketplaces yeah. as well, um, especially in in screw mount. I mean, it's it's actually fairly affordable still if you buy it in in S mount for. The Nikon rangefinder. I mean, it's still fairly affordable. As are you know, like the fifty one point four. Those are, I think, an absolute steal to get an S mount. Um, and I think for folks that, um, especially for folks that who are adapting lenses to to digital, I mean, it's probably worth. <laughs> to me, it's it's like worth investing in a decent adapter for whatever digital system you're using to use the S mount lenses because they're. I mean, they're fantastic and they're still. I think a, a a real bargain price wise. Because so if I L- were, were if if I were looking to to acquire you know that focal length and and benefit from Nikon's great optics, you're saying that yeah. um, it might be wise to search out a Nikon mount and just get that adapter as opposed to the Leica thread. Yeah, I mean if you're not going to shoot it on a Nikon S mount film body, I would say yeah. I mean it, yeah. you know it, it, right. I mean. To, to me, it's a it's a really great value if you're gonna just shoot it, you know, adapted to something else. Because why, why pay? Yeah, I mean, you could buy the lens and a really high quality adapter, like the Amadeo adapter. You could probably get the lens and the adapter for the price difference of the LTM version of the lens. It's, I mean, they they're crazy right now. There, it's it's a five, six, seven hundred dollar lens, whereas the, you know, the the S mount version is like a two to three hundred dollar lens still. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. So yeah, we have we, we have uh, only what twenty four hours before this episode will air. Um, we, <laughs> Everybody, we, <laughs> we should really quickly go out and, and buy up uh, eighty five millimeter Nikon S mount lenses that you could find before. I they would skyrocket. say yes. Well, the, yeah. From from well, my, Carl doesn't I, know. I was just going to say from from my perspective, sitting here, I've got one in front of me. <laughs> oh, good. I have, and it's uh, it's it's interesting. Eighty five millimeters not is not really a focal length I've I've, I've used. Um, and, and I don't really take anywhere near enough people shots, but I've had numerous uh, Jupiter Jupiter nines, uh, which is you know, effectively the same optical formulation. There, we're, we're talking sonars now. Sonar based, yeah. Yeah, and um, so that so both this this Nikon and um, 
and the uh, the the Jupiter Nine, you, you can trace them back to the to the same points, but obviously they, they overall the designs uh, diverge in, in in some ways. But I've had probably about fifteen uh, Jupiter Nines, and whenever I pick one up, um, I will test it against uh, my previous best, and whichever one wins goes goes into my cupboard, and uh, and that becomes the one that I've got, and I then. About must be about eighteen months ago. I bought uh, this this uh, nickel eighty five or eight eight point five centimeters. Give it its uh, proper name, of course, and it's on LTM mount. And I tested it against my um, fifth out of fifteen best Jupiter nines, and it was easily better, and yeah. you know noticeably yeah. so. Um, so I I I got a. You know, completely agree with uh, what Bob was saying, saying there. You know, it's a, it's a superb lens, and I've been I've been looking at one hundred five two point five, and I'm I'm trying to get hold of, hold one at the moment. But I've, I would be surprised actually if I if I would prefer it to to this Nikon, because I think it's this, this eighty five f two bus. I think it's an absolutely amazing lens, and the weight of it as well. It's incredible. Oh, it's, you know? it's, a dead, it's a deadly weapon. You could kill somebody with that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you want to go into a fight, just put one of these in your fist, yeah. and then or, or either that or put it in a sock and start swinging it. Yeah. <laughs> you like those things the Vikings used to use and knock people out with? It's, it's the one thirty five f fours are the same way. I mean, they're heavy yeah. as a brick. Oh. You know. Yeah. So, how many of Nikon's uh, focal lengths were sonar based? Are they all? Or I know you mentioned. Well, basically, basically, uh, the the Nikon optical designers leaned towards. Uh, Zeiss formulas as opposed towards lights formula. They didn't really, they didn't really, they weren't influenced by Leica very much at all, um, and I, for good reasons. Like I said, the Zeiss lenses were better lenses, especially right after the war. But um, the 85 f2, uh, I think the 514s, the 515, of course, was sonar based. Uh, the original 50 f2 collapsibles. Um, the 35 35 was a Tessar formula. Which again is Zeiss. Okay, uh, that's all the thirty-five. The, the, the twenty-five uh, F four when it came out in fifty-six or so was also uh, Tessar based. But um, then they started, you know, and then the one hundred five is actually a grown-up eighty-five F two formula. Uh, the one hundred five F formula is very similar to the eighty-five F two, just kind of like designed the, the you know, it, it, it's, it's, I call it a grown-up formula. It's just a little bit longer, a little bit bigger. The one hundred five is a superb lens. Don't get me wrong. Um, but for me, when I was in school, like I had to shoot a lot of portraits. I had to shoot every professor on campus, all the queens, et cetera, you know, homecoming, whatever. And I was shooting a lot of portraits. And I found I had an 85.18 for my F and I had a 105.25. And the 85.18 became my normal. I had two normals, 85.18 and a 35 F2. I didn't even own a 50. Okay. That's what I used to shoot that whole yearbook one year. And that 85.18 to me, gave me much better portraits than the 105 did. Uh, the 105, if I needed a little more reach, I would use the 105, which is a superb lens. Um, but again, it's very similar to the 85. And the 105, and even the 85, eventually became the 85-18 in Nikon reflex mount. The 105 became the 105 in reflex mount almost unchanged and remained yeah. that formula up until about 1970 or so when they started to play with the formula a little bit. But that... 105 formula, which came out, which actually was designed in about 1955, that formula was used by Nikon for over 20 years to make that 105, which became their most famous lens, period, 
was the 105, and uh, which is interesting. And um, so the 105, I'm not taking anything away from it. I'm just saying from my point of view, and especially in the early years, before the 105 even came out, when you just had that original set of lenses, the 85 was the best. Once you got into yeah. the S2 era, which is late 50, or 55 and after, uh, you started seeing um, uh, originality on their part. They started, you know, the 25 F5 was unique. Uh, the 35.18 was unique. Even had radioactive glass in it. It was so unique. And uh, the um, uh, there are other lenses, their long lenses, et cetera, et cetera. But on their the 51.1, you know, the micro and that kind of stuff. They were they were they were moving away from that German influence very quickly. And their cameras showed mm. it too. The S2 didn't look like anything the Germans made. It still looked like a contact because of that front plate, but it wasn't. And it wasn't even a Nikon anymore. It was a totally different camera. Uh, didn't even, had nothing to do with the S. It had absolutely no interchangeable parts except for the focusing wheel and the lens mount itself with the, with the preceding models. And um, so they were moving away quickly. They, they became uh, their own. They became their own people very quickly and uh, realized that their ideas were in many cases better than the prevailing ideas because you know, just because the Germans did it one way, didn't make it gospel. There was other ways of doing things. And they're, the man who really influenced this drastic change and upgrade uh, and, and this evolution in design was Joe Ehrenreich. Um, Joe Ehrenreich was an extremely influential person. And what he would do, he and, and Al Levin, who I know personally, who was their original salesman for the entire East Coast of the United States, those two were master salesmen. You know, they could sell a uh, an air conditioner to an Eskimo for his igloo. They were so good. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, especially, you know, Joe Ehrenreich owned his own camera store before he took over the Nikon. So this guy was a salesman from day one. And um, what they did was, is they went to the pros. They went right in New York at that time was the center of the photographic world, period. And they went to all the pros whom they all knew. They knew them all. And uh, asked them, you know, hey, what don't you like about this? Or what would you like to see, et cetera, et cetera? What kind of lenses do you want? Da, 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 da. And they would take this, and Aaron Reich would go to Japan twice a year, sometimes for a month, sometimes for two months. And he'd sit down with all the designers, Fukita and Fukuoka and all the guys. And he'd say, well, this is what Americans want. This is what I want. Since he was their number one customer, buying something like 90% of what they were making, they had to listen to him, and they did. And when the first S2 was designed and shown to him, it still had knob wind. This was in 19, late 1954. Well, you know, the <laughs> M3 had just come out. Well, you're not going to make a camera with knob wind, right? So he told me, he said, uh-uh, this ain't going to work. We have to have a rapid wind lever. So they had to take it back. And, and within six weeks, they had a design with a rapid wind lever. But they went like a one better, and they had a rapid rewind, too, which made sense, um, which like I never got into. But anyway, um, so the S2 ended up looking like what it did because of Ehrenreich and everything just went from there. Uh, the motor drive was uh, Ehrenreich's idea. He says, my, they want something that shoots faster, you know, and the Leica motors were too hard to get at that time. So they want something that shoots faster, sports photographers. So the motor became, in fact, he's the one who named it. When he first went there to see the prototype, they handed it to him and he said, oh, a motor drive. And that's the term that stuck. Okay. But um, the Japanese, Fukeda, you know, I interviewed Fukeda for like, 12, 13 hours, and Fukuoka, who's the guy who designed the motor, as a matter of fact, he designed the first Rikon motor, and a couple other people. You know what they called him? His his nickname was Typhoon-san. 
Because, <laughs> okay, now the Japanese are very sedate, very laid back, very quiet, you know, not very outgoing. Uh, he was just the opposite. This guy came in like a tornado, like a typhoon, okay? He had his very uh, typical New York tough personality, okay? Knew what he wanted and wasn't afraid to say it and would criticize when he thought it was necessary. But he gave them all kinds of ideas and he pushed. And the amazing thing about it was is that in the 50s, in the early 60s, if he would go to them with an idea, he'd say, well, we need something like this. Sometimes they would have a working prototype in his hands within three months. It was The turnaround was just absolutely amazing. And the Germans just don't do that. You know, whether it's right or wrong, they just don't do it. Uh, the Japanese were just... The prototypes would just come out like crazy so fast that even Ehrenreich couldn't keep track of it. But anyway, the, the thing just snowballed from there, and they became totally individualistic. In other words, they no longer even looked to the Germans for, for any... Uh, the only thing that the Germans did after 1955 that impressed and, 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 and caused the Japanese to rethink things was the M3, Okay. Mm -hmm. Zeiss was past tense, okay? The M3 caught everybody in Japan off guard. They didn't know about that camera. It was a total shock to them. Canon didn't know about it. Nikon didn't know about it. They were just, they didn't know what to do. They were burning the midnight oil trying to figure out, what are we going to do? This, this camera is light years ahead of anything we make. That was the only thing the Germans ever made after the war that really rocked the Japanese industry, okay? And they said, you know, and the results, of course, was the SP-57, uh, which had most of the features of the M3, except it had a rapid rewind. And it had a motor, which, of course, Lycan never really got around to any, any, any level, any production level. But anyway, they became individual designers, not influenced very much at all by anybody but themselves. And uh, wow. they were superb engineers. They really were. They were superb thinkers, but they had a good, a good shepherd leading them by the guy by the name of Aaron Reich. Uh -huh. You had mentioned I, uh, earlier, or, or go ahead, Johnny. Sorry. No, I was just, I was just going to say, Bob. Um, that's a name that I think, you know, everybody. I feel like Nikon is. Everybody knows Nikon, right? But right. I, I don't think the name uh, Aaron Reich is as widely known. And I have to say, some of the favorite, my favorite stories I hear at Central Camera from the owner there, who has been, you know, in the business his entire Don, lifetime. Don Flesh. Yeah, yeah, Don. I know and Don, Don tells well. us, I know Don real. Yeah. And, and Don tells Ehrenreich stories, and one in particular that uh, just since we've kind of put the name out there, I mean, it, it seems to me that Nikon would not be the Nikon we know it today without the influence of Ehrenreich. And, and one of the stories I've heard Don tell, and maybe you, you can illuminate this for the audience as well, is even the name itself, Nikon, um, that when they, <laughs> when they tried to use that name in the U.S., apparently didn't Aaron Reich own the rights to that name and essentially Nikon had to buy him out? Is that, is that how that story goes? Well, Nikon eventually did buy Aaron Reich out. They bought EPOI, which is Aaron Reich Photo Optical Industries. Okay. Um, they did eventually buy Aaron Reich out, but it was after his death. He'd already died. Um, his, it was taken over by Joe Abbott, who was his second in command, who did a good job because he'd been there from day one, but then the son got involved and you know how things go with businesses. A lot of times, uh, uh, the sons don't do what the fathers did. But anyway, uh, Nikon did end up buying it. Uh, Nikon always, uh, the, the factory always owned the trademark, okay? 
But in North America, he had exclusive, including Canada, because in Canada he owned Anglophoto, which was the importer of Nikon in Canada. Uh, and he owned the exclusive rights to Nikon for all in North America. And there was a time when if you were a tourist and you went to Tokyo and bought a Nikon, sometimes customs would scratch the name out when you came through customs because it was on the books as being a protected trade name. Okay, But Aaron Reich, um, the story about, you know, the interesting thing about Aaron Reich is this. In, 19, in the early 1950s, Canon quality was just as good as Nikon quality. Okay. As a matter of fact, in the early years, 48, 49, and 50, externally, the Canons were much better finished, much better looking cameras. Okay. Um, I'm seeing some dark clouds moving in over your house here, Robert. What? I'm, I'm seeing some dark clouds moving in, oh. what you just said there. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm here's just the kidding. thing. It's true. Uh, that the, the <laughs> Canon body, if you look at the finish and that, the chrome, et cetera, et cetera, uh, of the Canon bodies from 48, 49, 50, 51, uh, they're superior. Okay, Nikon caught up very quickly, but at first, Canon was better. Um, the thing is, is that Canon did not have Joe Ehrenreich. And Canon here in the United States bounced around from about, oh, maybe four or five different importers during their rangefinder era. Okay, Canon's outsold Nikon in Europe. Now, I don't know who brought them in in Europe, but Canon rangefinders outsold Nikon rangefinders in Europe. Not in the United States. The United States, Nikon just blew them away. Canon just never was able to to push themselves into that same level that Nikon was because of Joe Ehrenreich, the master salesman, but also Joe Ehrenreich's influence on what they made. In other words, Canon never made a motor. Okay, they should have, but they never did. Um, and then when they came out with their their backloaders, the, the fives, the sixes, and the sevens, or whatever, which were fine cameras, they still never made a motor. Um, as a matter of fact, to, to tell you the difference, a lot of people don't realize this, but in the 12 years or, or a little bit over 12 years that Nikon made rangefinder cameras, they only made approximately 145,000 units. Okay? Canon made 800,000 screw mount cameras. Okay? Like it made, what, over a million bottom loaders? Okay. They made over 250,000 M3s. They made more M3s than all the Nikon rangefinders put together. Uh, but Nikon sold mostly here in the United States. They weren't known in Europe that well. Um, but again, it was because of Ehrenreich. And eventually, it proved to be what made them. In other words, Canon never was able to, to get anywhere with, in this country until 1971 with the release of the Canon F1. When they finally got smart and made an exact duplicate of the Nikon system, they copied everything. But the thing is, all their rangefinder error and their first reflexes were disasters. You know, the original Canon Flex, whatever, with their, they were disasters. The F came out in May. It was first shown in May of 59. It was first shipped in June and July of 59. Um, sold like hotcakes from day one. Um, sold so quickly. Yeah, and the volume increased so fast that eventually Nikon had to close down uh, the SPS3 assembly lines and switch over to the F because they just couldn't satisfy Aaron Reich's orders. The orders were just huge, and um, that was the future. And they they backed out of rangefinders very quickly, much more quickly than than like than uh, well like but much more quickly than Canon did. Switched over to the reflex, but what a lot of people don't realize is 
remember Fukeda was telling me about this for about an hour one day. The Nikon F and the Nikon SP were on the drawing boards at the exact same time. Okay? They shared something like 92% of the internal parts were the same, identical. If you look at an F and an SP, all the exterior controls are the same. Okay? Everything's the same. Even the, even the leatherette covering was the same. Okay? They were on the drawing boards at the same time. They were going to come out at the same time. They ran into a problem. To fit the mirror mechanism into the chassis of a Nikon SP, which is what the bean counters, the accountants wanted them to do because they only have to make one casting, which, of course, would be a savings as far as production went. They couldn't get it to fit. And Fukeda and the boys kept telling them, we can't make it work. We can't fit this mechanism into the SP's chassis. We have to make another chassis for the F a half inch longer. Well, they followed them for like a year. And finally, they convinced the bean counters there was no way out. They had to do it that way. So the F, which is the exact same chassis as the SP, if you look at them, take the backs off and you think you look at the same camera. The only difference is the F is a half inch longer to make room for that mirror mechanism. Okay? So then the F finally, but the F was delayed about a year and a half because of all this bickering. Okay? In other words, if things had been different, the SP and the F would have come out at almost the same time. So the F would have come out in 57 and not in 59. And really would have blown everybody away because there was nothing else. In 59, there was nothing to compete with it. The Germans didn't make anything. You know, like it never got around to, to what, 60-something. And, and cannons just weren't anywhere near as good. And the only other things coming out of Japan were like Mirandas and Pentaxes and stuff like that. But anyway, those two cameras were on the same drawing board at the same time, and they shared a massive number of parts. There's 900 and some parts. I think 960 parts in an Icon F body. There's like 912 or something like that in a range for SP body. And the only difference between the two, same shutter, exact same shutter, interchangeable parts. Only thing different is the viewing mechanism. But a lot of people don't realize that. They, that would have been a totally different situation if they had come out at the same time. That is interesting. I'm looking at uh, an F SLR right in front of me and one of the Nikon uh, rangefinders. And you're right. I mean, the body does look very similar. Yeah, it's got yeah. the, the speed dial, the shutter everything, speed selector, everything. the wine lever, everything. Um, even the location of the flash sync ports is exactly the same. Well, and, when I bought when I bought that first SP at that camera store in, in Des Moines when I was in, in, in still in school, when I asked to see it, I asked to see it because I wanted something quiet. Okay, that's why I was looking for it. When they handed it to me, it felt right at home because everything was the same as the F I was using now. In other words, everything, even the self-timer mechanism is the same. You can pop one out of the F and drop it into an SP, and you've got the same. It works, okay? The wind lever, the shutter speed dial, the, wind, the, 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 the hub, the rewind hub, the, even the back locks are all yeah. the same, okay? You open it up, the chassis is the same. Even the motor drive hookup lug is the same. Okay, everything's the same except the viewing system. That's the only thing that was different. The leather is the same. Everything, it felt like it felt the shape of the body is the same. And that half inch difference in length, you really don't notice it that much. Okay, uh, and it's a little bit heavier, of course. The F's a little bit heavier um, because of the mirror mechanism. That mirror housing had to be 
built rather robustly because they were going to have a motor, and that mirror was going to be flipping like crazy. So they had what they had the strongest mirror mechanism on the market at that time, and they had the only locking mirror ever in a reflex camera. An Icon F, even the F2 didn't have it. The F had a locking mirror. When that mirror came back down, it locked. If you stuck your finger in there, you couldn't raise the mirror with your finger like you can in every other SLR you can think of. If you turn the camera upside down, the mirror would never change position because the mirror locked when it came back down. They discontinued that with the F2. But can you imagine that motor working at four frames, a or not, not four, three and a half, couldn't go forward with the mirror, but say three to three and a half frames a second with a motor. And every time that thing's coming down, it's locking and unlocking. I mean, the, what that thing had to do to work with a motor was absolutely amazing. And it did work perfectly. So when when Nikon had released the F, you know, you said they shared so many of the parts. Um, yep. What about the lenses, though? Were they able to adapt no. pretty much? No. Well, the only, yeah, well yes and no. The, the only lenses that they were able to cannibalize uh, out of the reef out of the range find it was the 105 exact same formula you know the 85 which didn't come out right away the 105 came out in the reflex system the 105 came out way before the 85 for some reason just the opposite of the rangefinder um the 135 3.5 was the same optics you know barrels of course were totally different because you had a totally different mechanism you had automatic diaphragm and everything else but the thing is the the optical formulas for the 135 3.5 the 105 and the 50 F2 were very similar, if not identical, okay? Uh, the 51.4 was very different eventually when it came out, which was a 58 when it came out originally, not a 50. And then in the wide angles, only thing they had, it had a 35.28. Um, I've never actually looked at it that close. It might be similar to the rangefinder. Then the 28.35, which, of course, was totally different because it was retro, retro focus as opposed to uh, regular. Um, the 21... Funny story about the 21. The 21 F4 in rangefinder and reflex were announced at the same 1959 IPEC show here in the United States for both systems. Those two lenses are absolutely optically identical. The only thing they had to change was the rear element on the reflex version. They had to trim off a little bit of the rear element to clear the mirror. When they would when they would insert it, you had you had, didn't have the same amount of room, even though the mirror wasn't moving. They had to cleave off a little bit of the rear element to make it clear the internal mechanism of the mirror box. But the optical formula of those two lenses are exactly the same. So if I'm uh, someone who has a newer camera and I'm looking to adapt these old Nikors, um, is there something I would look for? You know, like, let's just stick with 50 millimeters since that's so common. But when I were to compare uh, a Nikon rangefinder lens to that of, of the F, um, quality-wise, should I be able to expect identical images, even if the formula is slightly changed? Okay, now you're talking about going to digital, right? You're talking about... Yeah, right, because that's okay. a lot of people like yeah. doing that these days. Now, the 51.4 in rangefinder mount, especially in a slightly later period, like after the S2 came out, and then when you got into the black barrels in 56 and 57, that lens kept getting better and better and better, okay? Those vintage 1.4s were superior to the, one, the 58 1.4 when it first came out. Matter of fact, the 58 1.4 didn't last very long. They had to replace it with a 50 1.4 because the edge, the edge uh, definition wasn't there and the curvature of field was too much. Okay, they couldn't compensate for the curvature of the field. Plus, they enlarged the uh, rear element of the 50 1.4 uh, for better optical uh, 
performance. So the 5814 is definitely not as good as the Rangefinder 1.4s. Okay, uh, the 50f2 in reflex mount was always a superb lens. You know, it, it just it was just one of those poor cousins that nobody paid any attention to. You know, uh, because it was an f2. It was it was you know wasn't didn't turn anybody on. Okay. But the 50f2 in reflex mount was actually a very fine lens. Again, it had been made basically, uh, they'd been making 50f2s just before the war. So the 50f2 was a very good lens. Um, the speed lenses, uh, the 1.5 was not as good as the 1.4 in the rangefinders. And then the 1.1, of course, was never as good as, as like the 1.2 in the, in the reflex mounts. But uh, uh, if you had a 1.4 black barrel 1.4 that has you know, been taken care of all its life and, and not abused or anything like this. Uh, odds are you put that out on, on a digital camera, you're going to get a damn good... Matter of fact, I have a, a, a... For running around, for shooting the grandkids, I have an Olympus pen uh, EP something or other, four-thirds, micro, four-thirds. And I have two adapters that I bought, one for Nikon reflex lenses and one for Nikon rangefinder lenses. So I have about 130 lenses here in the house I can put on that little Olympus. And I do it once in a while just to play around because they're fabulous lenses, okay? And on that micro four-thirds, of course, you're only using the, the center bundle of light coming through there. You're only using half of it. Uh, you're using the sharpest part of the lens. And uh, the images that you can get off of that thing are just fabulous sometimes. It's, it really is. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the way it, the rendition, the rendition of color and light in in the older lens is, is, to me, more pleasing than this 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 laser tack sharp stuff they're making today. You know, people when you read um, a lot of the forums in the Facebook groups and stuff like that, regardless of whatever you're interested in, you always get these posts from people who are new to the hobby, and they always say, "What's the best lens? What's the cheapest lens? What's a good entry level lens?" And uh, an answer I often give, um, be, simply because of its performance and value, is the Nikkor fifty the two, the F2 lens. Yep. And yes. you could find those things. Sometimes you buy the body and the lens is just attached to it. I mean, it, it's yeah. insane yeah. at how cheap those things are. So yeah. um, performance-wise, though, you know, if, if I were to... And, and this probably applied back then too, not just now. But let's say you were making a recommendation to a new photographer. Is it worth it to spend the extra money on the F1 four fifty millimeter as opposed to the two? I mean, sharpness wise, are you really going to see a difference? Do you think? Well, to me, and this is this has been in print many times over the years when people discuss high speed lenses. Uh, the writers will invariably say at some point in the article they'll say, "Well, you know." The 1.4 or the 1.2 is not going to be as sharp as your F2, especially wide open. Okay, everybody knows that, especially wide open. But if you need 1.4 to get the picture, you know, because of the light levels, right. then the 1.4 is a better lens. But the thing is, is 99% of the time you don't. Okay, uh, most of the time you do not need speed. Uh, speed just sells. Uh, speed is good ad copy. All right. Um, the 0.95 Canon lens was a dog from day one. Okay. Uh, it's a fabulous paperweight, but you don't want to go out and take pictures <laughs> with it. Okay? But the thing is, even the Nikon 1.1, when it first came out uh, in 57, um, you know, was cutting edge, had lanthium ga ga glass in it and everything like this. You know, it was very cutting edge, new coatings, et cetera, et cetera. But everybody who tested it even back then, 
Phil, you, you don't use it at 1.1. <laughs> okay. Now, I've shot with them at 1.1 just to see what it's like. And I mean, you know, it's, if, if you're shooting like um, boudoir pictures or whatever, you know, with, with, instead of putting Vaseline on the front of your lens, just shoot with a 1.1. You know, it's, it's, it gives you that nice, hazy, glossy stuff, you know. But the thing is, at 5.6 or 5.8, it's sharp as a tack, but so is the F2. Okay. So what are you going to shoot at? Are you going to be shooting at 1.1 or are you going to be shooting at 5.6? Well, if you're going to be shooting at 5.6, right. you might as well buy an F2, which costs one-fourth as much as the 1.1 one one did. Well, the same thing in the reflex era. The 1.2, they made half a dozen different versions of the 1.2, including the Noct Nightcore, which was tremendously expensive. Again, at 5.6, even the 1.4 was just as sharp as the 1.2, and the F2, of course, was just as sharp as the 1.2. So why spend that money on a 1.2 right. if you're not going to shoot that black cat in a cold bin? You know, you, you don't you don't need that speed. It's just, but they make them because they're glamorous. They fill out the catalog. They compete with the competitors. Okay, Nikon from day one, I, I swear they must have had a couple guys in a room somewhere saying we have to have a catalog as big as lights. Okay, and if you look at Nikon's early years. They were like Leica. They made adapters. They made this. They made that. They made so many things that you know they were losing money on every one of them. Okay? You knew it. They were, they were losing their shirt on this stuff. But they had to have it in the catalog. Okay? It had to be in the catalog. And because they were competing with, with Leica. So. When I look at um, the lenses, I mean, I'm sitting in front of, of essentially a museum uh, display of, of Nikkor lenses and stuff. One thing that really impresses me about the Nikkor S-mount, the rangefinder lenses, is how compact they are. They're just so yes. small. Yes. Um, they, they don't have um, what's called a helix, which is how lenses focus. That was built into the body, not the lens, so that allowed the lens to be a lot smaller. So the, the normal lenses. The normal lenses, lens, right, lenses, yeah, the, the 50 millimeters. But... Um, if you know one thing that I think sometimes gets lost on people who try adapting lenses is they go for these 1.2s and these 1.1s, yeah. and that now every, these Chinese companies are releasing 0.95 lenses yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But they're so big and they're so heavy, and they they yes. throw off the balance. And yes. you know we you know I'm not going to debate. SLR versus mirrorless, but one of the supposed benefits for mirrorless cameras is supposed to be that they're smaller, and you know yeah. you you negate that when you mount a monstrous lens to it. So, it, you know, if if I was a, a listener of this podcast and I was looking for you know value, extreme value, I'm gonna still stay that the 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 F mount 50 f2 lens is a tremendous value. But if you want compactness and you want a nice compact little lens that's not gonna you know make the the whole front of your your mirrorless camera front heavy the the s mount f14 even the f2s are about the same size i think but they're they're really compact and i and i think and that they're that, light they're very light yeah i think that gets lost sometimes on on younger people who are trying to adapt it's like you know yeah. th there is there is merit in a compact lens as well well another thing too is um speed in other words um I have a, I have a, a Nikon D200 which I use to shoot the the magazine and all this kind of that's different that's just a regular mirror, but I have that that Olympus which is mirrorless and I have the electronic viewfinder because I'm one of these people I cannot hold my camera out at arm's length to to view a picture because I think that's so ridiculous looking to begin with but anyway, it has to be you know against my face up against my eye that's the only way I feel like camera should be in, 
I have this electronic viewfinder that Olympus makes, which is a fabulous little viewfinder, okay? Well, these, this thing can see in the dark almost, okay? So you can put a slow lens on the front, and it doesn't matter because that finder is so bright. So you can get a, a 50 f2, or if the wide angles, get the 35 uh, 2.5 or the 35.3. You look at those lenses, you look at the 35 3.5 or the 2.5, the optics, the front element is about the size of a dime, you know what I mean? Yeah. A dime. It's it's so tiny. They didn't even they didn't even push the lens shades back in those days for the wides because the front element was so small you didn't get any flare. There wasn't any glass for the light to bounce off of. Okay. When they got to the thirty five one eight and that it was different. But that like the twenty five, the thirty five three five, the thirty five two five. You're talking about optical glass that's almost comical yeah. compared to what you have to do today. I mean, you're talking about pieces of glass that. You almost have to look twice to find them, okay? And so the optics um, were so much smaller. Therefore, your weight, because glass is heavy, most of the weight was in the barrels. And as what Nikon did in the beginning, of course, after the war, what a lot of people don't realize is, is that the easiest thing to get a hold of after World War II was brass, okay? Why? Because they used it for shells, artillery shells and bullets, et cetera, et cetera. And after the war... Japan was just buried in brass, okay? So you couldn't get chromium and you couldn't get aluminum, but you sure as hell could get brass, all right? So their early lenses are like we were talking before. They're lethal weapons. They're so damn heavy, it's unbelievable. It's overkill. Again, they wanted to impress buyers over and above what the Germans were putting out. So in those days, uh, back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, even when I was a kid, weight was automatically... Uh, determined by quality was determined by weight in other words something that was lightweight you thought was junk something that was heavy was good that's how everybody looked at everything back in those days so the heavier the better so their lenses and their cameras were much heavier than they needed to be as a matter of fact the only thing that david stuggis duncan ever complained about was the weight of the equipment that's the only thing he ever complained about and starting in 1950 up until 1964 when the range size were finally discontinued Nikon continuously lightened everything. The lenses eventually shifted over to aluminum alloys, etc. The helixes were still brass, but they were smaller. The lenses actually got lighter with time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the bodies got, the S2 was lighter than the S. The SP was lighter than the S2. They kept getting lighter and lighter because of technology, metallurgy, etc., etc. But in the beginning, this stuff was just heavy as hell. And when you have an 85 F2, like those were built, there's no way those optics are ever going to go out of alignment. I mean, you'd have to literally throw it into the Grand Canyon to make that thing go out of alignment. I mean, the way they were built. And with 100% uh, inspection, every lens that I got to throw, one story I got to throw in real quick, okay? There was a, a uh, in world, after, right after the war, of course, Americans were all over Japan. And there was a, a Navy lieutenant who docked at Tokyo Bay. And he was a Leica user, but he, he knew about these Nikon lenses. And in those days, if you had a uniform, you could literally walk up to the, to the factory and they would let you in. Okay. And they would take you on a tour because they wanted to impress the Americans so much. And Americans, of course, were their main customer because we were buying stuff at the PXs and whatever. Anyway, he walked through the whole factory. He went by this one room where they were making lenses. And believe it or not, they were making the 85F2, the lens we've been talking about. So he stood there and he's watching. And they're coming down a slow belt, of course. And the last guy in line is the one who does the final inspection. Uh, they've already done the photographic inspection. He does the actual, and he looks at it, he shakes it, he sees if everything's okay. And then if it passes him, 
it gets handed to the next guy who actually starts to put it into the box, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, he's standing there, and one lens comes down, and the guy's looking at it. He's he's frowning. There's something wrong with this lens. He didn't like it. So he set it down on the table, okay? And he took a hammer, and he ran the hammer through the front element, destroyed the lens. Then he picked the lens up, and he threw it into this 55-gallon drum that was sitting next to the table. So this, this lieutenant says, what the hell is he doing? He walked over. The drum was half full. The drum was half full of 85 F2s that had been destroyed. Now, that's inspection. <laughs> wow. Think about that. That's when Watanabe was still king, and he demanded 100%. And I talked to a couple camera dealers here in Chicago, not, not Don Flesh, but others. And I remember one camera dealer said, you know, he said, I'll say one thing he said about the Nikons. He says, after the war in the 50s and whatever, he says, we sold a lot of Leica lenses that came back. The buyers would come back and say, this isn't sharp or this is not. But we never had a Nikon lens come back. The consistency was 100%. Every lens we ever sold, we never saw it again. Okay. In other words, the Leica lenses might have been better in some respects, but the Nikons were consistent across the board. That's what they wanted. They didn't want any lemons out there. They didn't want any rejects. So if they could be 100% reject free, eventually the buying public would realize it and say to themselves, why should I spend 20, 30% more for the German product when the Japanese one is just as good and the odds are it's going to be better for longer? So that's what happened. They took over eventually. And it didn't take that long for them to come to that realization. You know, the Japanese photo industry as a whole benefited greatly by Nikon's... um, you know, quality control standards. Of course. You know, I, I one of my first questions I asked you is, you know, why or how did they get to be so good? And you know, you, you've answered that w- a couple different ways. The first of which is, I think, when you're a company that builds things specifically for the military, and you yes. don't, you don't, you don't have to worry about consumer reports, you know, articles, or you know, they basically sat there and just said, "We're going to sit here and we're going to make this until it's perfect." And well, that's the thing. Yeah, a military when you're making things for the military. Your, your, your mindset is very different than when you're making things for, for, right. for the retail market. And for the retail market, even today, of course, even more today, price is the, is the bottom line. In other words, you can't make anything unless you know what you can sell it for. Okay, right. If you can't sell it to be competitive, you're not going to make it. Okay, Whereas when you're making things for the military, again, even today or even more obvious today, you don't worry about that. The military just says it has to work. It has to do this. It has to do that. These are the specs. Here's, here's this three-ring binder. It's 400 pages long. This is what you have to make. You have to satisfy all of this. Cost is no no matter, okay? So that's why you have $20,000 toilet seats, right? Okay. So the thing is, when you're, a, when you're a military company, for as long as they were, don't forget, they were a military supplier for almost 30 years before they had to make their first camera, okay? Everything they made had to, had to hold up in an, an environment. Don't forget, they were in the South Pacific. They weren't in Europe. They were in the South Pacific. You had environmental conditions there that were absolutely horrendous. You had environmental conditions that destroyed human beings, let alone mechanical things, okay? You had fungus, you had mold, you had rain, you had everything imaginable. And for things to hold up out there, they had to be made right. And they were. And again, that's what the customer wanted. He didn't care what it cost. It had to work 100% of the time. And it had to hold up under some very rough conditions you know if a guy's carrying a pair of binoculars across some mountain in borneo it better work when he gets to the other side right okay so that's their mindset and because of that when they started making uh, com- uh you know, 
commercial products or retail products after the war. At first, they built the military specs, those binoculars that those occupation troops were buying for 30 and $40 a pair were made with parts that were made during and before the war. They were made to military specifications. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you think that they maintained that level of quality, you know, moving forward over the decades, you know, even in through well, today? Look at it this way. The, um, the, the rangefinders on the two biggest battleships ever made, which was the Yamato and the Masushi, okay? The two Japanese battleships were the biggest. They, they, were, they made the Bismarck look small. The, they were the two largest battleships in the world, okay? Nikon, Fukeda himself worked on the, the guys who designed the rangefinders for those two battleships, for the guns, okay? The rangefinders... For those who were modern on the mast, they were something like six feet across, okay? Those rangefinders, the prisms in those rangefinders were not ground to minutes. They were ground to seconds, okay? Those rangefinders were so precise that those 16 and 18-inch guns on those battleships were accurate to 100 feet at 25,000 feet, okay? That's how accurate those guns were. That technology that they learned during the war, making those prisms in those rangefinders and all the other smaller ones they made for binoculars, et cetera, et cetera, came in handy when they had designed the prism for the Nikon F. So it's it's a little morbid to think, but you know, part of the reason Japan was as successful as they were during that period was, you know, a result of of the dedication and quality that that Nippon Kugaku had done back then. And um, oh, of course, and it, and it also was a, what allowed them to survive and continue to make the great products that we did benefit from over the years. So they learn, like the they learn, yeah. One, one of the things they were they they had to do was the, the submarine periscopes especially back then, uh, were notoriously dim, okay? Uh, optical technology, coding technology, et cetera, et cetera. Even the American ones, uh, they were very dim compared to what you would imagine today. But anyway, Nikon was, was, was told to design uh, periscopes that were brighter, easier to see. And a periscope has a tremendous number of optics in it, a lot of different elements, a lot of different prisms, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of glass in there. Nikon came up with coatings, et cetera, um, that when they showed their new periscope to the Navy, it was like twice as bright as everything that everybody else made. And the thing, part of it was, was coatings. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is that Nikon was coating all their optics during the war. Therefore, when they made their first lenses in 46 and 47, at that time in screw mount, they didn't have a camera yet. When they were making those first lenses starting in 46 and 47, they were already coding. When did the Germans start coding? The 50s. Nikon was coding in the 40s. Nikon coded long before. That's what that little red C on the front where it says Nikkor QC or Nikkor SC or what. The C meant coded, Okay. Eventually, in 1957 or 58, they, they, they got rid of that seat because by then everybody knew that everything was coded. But that was an advertising point. And every lens they ever made for the rangefinders from day one was coded. And that so the Germans. I don't think, I don't think Lights and Zeiss started to, what, 50, 51 to do actual across-the-board coding on all their optics. So Nikon was, was ahead of the game there from things they had to learn during the war. Okay. Right. 
those prisms, the accuracy of those prisms, et cetera, et cetera. Their battleship binoculars to this day are the most valued battleship binoculars in the world, okay? Those things, they even had light bulbs built inside of them so you could see better. Did you know that? Did you know that the, that the Japanese didn't have radar? They had it, but they, were, they didn't go very far with it. And we would always beat them during the day because our radar would pick up their ships before they could see us, right? But at night, when everybody's kind of like traveling blind, they kept beating us at night. All the naval battles at night, they were beating the hell out of us, okay? And we couldn't figure out why. They don't have radar. We could see them on our radar. How could they see us? They would go, they would pick special guys with special vision. They, they would go through hundreds of guys to find them. They'd put them up in those crow's nests with these battleship binoculars. And these guys would see our ships before our radar would see them. And they would therefore be more, they would they would surprise us and not the other way around. And those battleship binoculars were so good that after the war ended, the Navy confiscated warehouses full of optical equipment of all types and sent it all back to the United States, mostly to Bethesda. And they had a lab there that went through that stuff, dissecting everything that the Japanese made optically, and they were just amazed. And what that stuff, we had nothing like it. Our optics were nothing like what the Japanese had in World War II. And uh, if they had if they'd had radar, we really would have been in trouble. Really. So, you know, a name you've mentioned many times is Masahiro Fukeda. Um, oh, yeah. He, he was, you know, one of the, the main guys. Um, I know you had told me previously you had met him a couple times, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. About four times, yeah. So how long in Nikon's history, I know he's since passed away, but how long was his influence felt at, at Nikon? Okay. Uh, like I said, he designed, the, he was part of the team that designed the fire, they called it fire control, which was the, the uh, range fighters and that for those, the Yamato and the, and the Mishishi and, and other battleships or whatever. So he was working for Nikon before the war. But he was not drafted because he was, uh, you know, he was considered too valuable uh, an engineer and a technician. So he worked through Nippon Kugaku through the war. Then, of course, the war ended. Now, he was retained, uh, and when they first started to work uh, on the cameras, he was part of the, the, the committee who decided to make a camera. They were going to make two cameras, a 35-millimeter, and, of course, they also had a, a 120 uh, Roliflex SLR or TLR copy on the drawing board, which they never made. Uh, but anyway, so he was working in '46 on the original drawings for the Nikon 1. He was part of the team that designed the Nikon 1. The last project he worked on, he designed the Nikon F. The F stands for Fukeda. He would never admit it. Every time you'd say that to him, he'd kind of just smile. You know how the Japanese are. They're very shy about things like that. They don't brag. But the F did not mean flex. The F meant Fukeda. So he was there up through 1960 as their top designer. He then became, uh, even after he retired, he became what they call a consular. And when I met him, I met him at the, uh, their headquarters in Tokyo the day of the stockholders meeting. He was there, and uh, uh, that was the first time I met him. So he was he was top man up to the day he died. Uh -huh. So, but he his influence was from before the war all the way through the Nikon F. Okay, um, let's bring things up to the the present day, and I'm just going to say uh, Johnny's no longer with us now. Um, <laughs> that's not to say he's, he's not. not. <laughs> oh. he's, he's somewhere, but he's just not on the podcast anymore. Um, he's he's had to go. Um, but he he left me a question oh, okay. Um, okay. before before he disappeared. 
And uh, it okay. particularly like to know what your viewpoint is on uh, Nikon or Nikon's new mirrorless cameras. Well, I actually saw. I never. I never held their any of their. Well, I shouldn't say I never held any. I've had a couple of them a few years back, but I never um, owned any of the one series that they have. I never even held one of my hands. But the Z7, we had our. We just had our 16th convention here in Chicago for the Society. Uh, back in the, the first weekend of October, and um, uh, one of the, we had two people from Nikon there. We had Mr. Goto, we had Mr. Shirasaka. Mr. Shirasaka it was returning from Photokina. He flew from Photokina then stopped in Chicago to, to be part of our convention, okay? And he had with him a Z7 with no serial number. So it was like a, you know, a real early one. And, of course, it was the hit of the show. I mean, everybody wanted to handle it, whatever. And I got to handle it. Um, it's not small, <laughs> and it's not lightweight, but it, it, it feels like a Nikon. It doesn't feel like a toy. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever own one because they're expensive, and I don't really need to shoot that much anymore besides the grandkids. But um, I think that they finally got it right. And what they did right was um, they're coming out with two models at the same time, so you have a choice. And they changed the, they entirely changed the lens mount, and they changed it to a much wider throat on that lens mount, and that's going to allow them to design much more exotic and really fantastic lenses. Plus, they made an adapter that you can put all your reflex lenses on that camera. And if you buy the adapter at the same time you buy the camera, you save a hundred bucks. They have actually actually have a package deal, so they're marketing. And that's what this Shirasaka works for. He's in the marketing department. Their marketing is superb. And even though the camera is very expensive, I mean, you can spend almost as much for a Sony, and that's not a camera company, okay? So, um, I, and the optics, of course, are they're really going to concentrate on the optics, all right? And uh, he told me they've got like four or five or six lenses on the boards that they want to get on the market before next Christmas. You know? And he wouldn't tell me what they were, but... They're going to be they're going to be special, I'm sure. But the thing is, um, I think they may have finally gotten it right. I don't think the one series was really turned very many people on. Uh, in the Coolpix series, I had a couple of them. They were okay, uh, but the time lag is too much between when you press the button and whatever. This one has very little time lag, which is what a reflex user is used to. Is no time lag, and uh, I think uh, they may have you know it may be expensive and it may somewhere down the road come out with a uh, a lesser model uh maybe five six eight hundred dollars less in price with less features but you don't really use all those features anyway one thing you know i've done a lot of research on nikon and a lot of the different things that they've made is you'll read a lot about now with the z series everybody says did nikon wait too long has the market passed them by you know are they why didn't they come out with this design faster and the thing is that that's always been the way nikon operated you yes. know they yes. they released the f in 59 they were one of the last japanese manufacturers to release one that's um right. they didn't even began downsizing their SLRs until the FM, yes. which I think was 77. You know, Olympus and Pentax had more compact SLRs way before then. Um, Nikon didn't even have their first autofocus camera till I think, 83. Um, yeah, four. Yeah, four. 
Well, the point and shoots. I think they had oh, a point, point and shoot. shoot. Yeah. Whereas, you know, people were coming up with autofocus cameras in the late seventies. You know, so yeah. uh, some, some. I mean, I obviously don't have a crystal ball. I don't even own. You know, like Robert says, I can't afford a Z series. But you know, for anybody out there, maybe who thinks that Nikon waited too long to release this this new series, uh, you know, looking back on their history, that's that's you know modus operandi for them. They they don't rush to market with things, and they do make things right the first time so well um, you know the question is do you want it fast or do you want it right now <laughs> the, the market yeah. will dictate that but uh i yeah, i've i've do. never i've but never shot is, one go ahead the, the marketing is infinite in other words okay let's say you're a couple of years late in coming out with uh the right camera like they like like say the z okay well yeah in those two years you may have lost a lot of customers to other people but in the meantime other people were being born and other people were aging. And in other words, now it's two years later. Now you have a whole new group of people that are looking for that kind of camera. And if you've got the right one, they're going to buy it. So, and then you may eventually get those people you lost in those two years when these new people say, hey, this thing's even better than what you have, you know. So the thing is, is better companies, and, and the Germans are like that. Leica was like that. Zeiss was like that. Hasselblad was like that. All the big name companies are never in a hurry to get anything out there unless they absolutely positively have to. And most of the time when they do that, they make mistakes. Okay. They come out with a second rate product or a product that could have been better. And fortunately, most of the time they learn by that. But um, like the F2, the Nikon F2 was forced out earlier than it was ready because of the Canon F1. Okay. Uh, the F1, which was just a copy of the F system, but it had a couple of features that were more modern and easier to deal with. It wasn't better in any sense, okay? But it had some features. And there the F2 was the response to the Canon F1, but it had to, they had to hurry it up because they didn't want that, because the F was already like 12 years old. It was getting kind of long in the tooth there. So uh, the F2 was forced out a little bit early. The F4, now the F3 was a hugely successful camera, okay? But the F4 was forced out early because of autofocus, and then it got criticized because Canon's autofocus was better. As a matter of fact, during the F4 era, all of a sudden, if you watch football games and whatever, you saw Canon's on the sideline. You didn't see Nikon's anymore because Canon's autofocus was following the movement of those athletes much better than Nikon's was. And Nikon got in trouble, and they knew it. So by the time they came out with the F5, they, they changed their software instead of so – whereas today – and it's mostly software, by the way. It's not mechanics. Today – their autofocus is superior to Canon's. And now you look at your football games and you're seeing all the Nikon's back on the sidelines, okay? So it, it sometimes things get rushed. And a lot of times when you rush things, you don't do it quite right. If you take your time, if you can, if you can economically take your time, uh, you're better off doing it. Even if it's just a matter of sometimes of six months can make a big difference. And we look at the auto industry. You know how much better our cars would be if they took a little more time to come up with them? You know, yeah. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's when you have something with so many parts and so many things that have to work properly, it's also a movable object. Therefore, it's exposed to the environment. It's exposed to temperature changes. It's exposed to being dropped, kicked, whatever. Um, it's got to be done right. Otherwise, it's not going to hold up. And pros, they don't give a damn what it looks like. They just want it to work because that's their livelihood. Okay. So, you design if you design like the, the top of the line series, like say the D, the DSLRs. Yeah, they're heavy. Yeah, they're heavy. 
but they're fantastic pieces of equipment. And when you're shooting in Iraq, you better have a camera that works because you're going to get shot at whether your camera's working or not. So if you're going to die, you might as well have a working camera, right? So the thing is, that's how pros look at it. And uh, if companies like Nikon and, and, and Canon don't at least try to make cameras that the pros can make a living with, then we're all going to suffer down the road because we have all garbage after a while. Like, you know, everybody downsized and made cameras that didn't hold up. You heard the story about Olympus and UPI, didn't you? No. Mike, did you ever hear that story? Okay. I worked for UPI when I was in college. I was a stringer for UPI. And um, in those days, when you were a UPI photographer, they gave you, when you first started with them, not me because I already had my own, but if you're a full-time UPI photographer, they gave you a black motorized Nikon F, a 35 F2, and a 105-25. That was your starting kit, okay? That's all UPI used was Nikons. Every time a UPI photographer would go to the middle, to out east, the far east on assignment, he was always told to buy a couple sets and bring them back with them, okay? So... Nikon was the camera for all of UPI and National Geographic. I've seen their ca I saw their cabinet in Washington D.C. Their in, in their equipment room. It's a huge cabinet, about a whole wall. But the thing is, 100% Nikon. All your newspapers, 100% Nikon, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. The Olympus OM-1 comes out, right? Land breaking, landmark camera. They go to they go to UPI and they talk UPI into switching from Nikon. To Olympus. They gave UPI something like a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment free just to get it started. Okay. Well, about two or three years later, I ran into a UPI photographer I knew up here at, uh, in Chicago, and uh, he had his F around his neck, and and I had mine, and we're talking. And I said uh, he had just retired from UPI, and I said, "Well, how's things going at UPI?" He said, "Oh, he says you wouldn't believe it. It's just unbelievable what's going." I said, "What happened?" He said, "Well." You know, we switched to Olympus about three years ago. And they got rid of all their Nikons. You can imagine how much it was, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Got rid of all their Nikon Fs and F2s and bought this Olympus and all their lenses. And this stuff is just falling apart. Uh, the lenses don't have enough metal in them. They're all glass. Uh, the bodies just aren't strong enough, you know. They're just falling apart. So we have to go out. Now we got to buy all F3s or F4s, whatever it was at that time. They had to go out and they had to buy a you know, huge number amount of equipment, uh, Nikon equipment, to replace the Olympus because the Olympus stuff fell apart. Downsizing is a nice thing. And there was probably a lot of, you know, Nikon F was much heavier than it needed to be. But the thing is, downsizing sometimes can take away a lot. And, and if you downsize too much, a Nikon did downsize to the FEFM series, but they were still pretty good cameras, okay? Uh, but when they started to go with the digital, the D1, sign with the D1, they didn't downsize anything because they knew it had to be built right to work, right. especially electronics. If you don't build electronics right, you know, mechanical stuff, you can open up and clean it and this and that. You can't do that with this electronic stuff. Uh, those circuit boards, you can't do anything with them, you know, uh, they don't hold up in humidity. They don't hold up in sand. They don't hold up in water. You know, they don't, they're temperature sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they had to, they had to, to make those, those professional grade D series SLRs. They had to make them like they did. And they're still making them like that. 
So, you know, we'll probably never, ever, ever stop debating, um, you know, superiority of the different brands, Nikon, Canon, Olympus, you know, Sony now is the hot ticket because they offer probably the most affordable of the full frame digital mirrorless cameras. Um, But there's there's another topic that uh, has caused debate over the years that if um, you could Google, you'll hear a lot of different people weighing in. And um, it's in the proper pronunciation of, you know, what, you know, being American, we call Nikon, um, yeah. Simon, you know, you, you, it's Nikon. Um, yeah. you've, even, you've even heard knee, you know, Nikon. And uh, there, there was an article last year, actually, Petapixel had posted it where they, they went straight to the source and they, they talked to some executive or high up person at, at Nikon and said, what's the proper way to pronounce it? You know, Nikon, Nikon or Nikon. And the answer they give gave was, you know, they're all correct. You know, we don't, yeah, right. <laughs> we don't right. actually care yeah. how you want to pronounce our company's name but but robert you and i had spoken a couple months back and and you offered that there there might even be a fourth answer yes okay Uh, so (laughs) okay first of all like you say how something's pronounced sometimes doesn't really matter that much like is it harassment or harassment okay you both the 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 person you're talking to is going to know what you mean okay whether you say harassment or harassment it's just a matter of how you accent things all right now Nippon, Nikon, I say Nikon because I'm American, okay. But Nikon is derived, of course, from Nippon Kugaku, N-I and then K-O and then an N. And it was chosen simply because it was easy to pronounce in all languages. Um, The funny thing is, is that in Japan, and I've been there five times, and talking to to Japanese collectors and and Fukeda and the guys, they will invariably say Nikon, okay? Um, Some... People in Europe, uh, and I've been there, like I say, many, many times, will say Nikon. Uh, in America, it's almost universally Nikon. Uh, why? I don't know. Uh, I'm, probably because that's the way Ehrenreich and Levin pronounced it when they first started to sell these things in 1955, okay? Um, and before that, with Adolf Gasser in San Francisco was pushing them, maybe he was calling them Nikon. I don't know. He's dead now, so I can't ask him. Um, the thing is... Uh, What's correct? Well, uh, no matter who's saying what, you're going to know what they're talking about, right? But here's the thing. What a lot of people don't realize is that the Japanese symbols for the word Nikon, it's a two-syllable word, but they have three symbols. It's a th- three symbols for a two-syllable word. Uh, for Americans, of course, Japanese is incomprehensible. But the thing is, why do they have three symbols for a two-syllable word? And the thing is, is that some of them actually pronounce it the econ. So it is three syllables. But if you start saying the econ, people look at you like you're crazy, right? So, but to this day, if you see the word Nikon written in Japanese characters, it's three separate characters. Uh, all of them are correct, you know. Uh, the only thing is, is that what's funny is, is that the word is not Nippon Kagaku, it's Nippon Kagaku. And everybody knows that Nippon is the way it's pronounced. Nippon, it's a short eye. And also, invariably, I never say, I, I shouldn't say never, but I seldom say, I say Nikkor lenses more often than I say Nikkor lenses, okay? So, you know, it's, it's just a matter of where you're at, I guess, but they're all correct. But in Japan, they tend to lean in, in regular conversation across tables with people. Uh, they invariably say Nikon or Nikon. I think over here in, in the UK, we, um, yeah, we do invariably say Nikon. 
Uh, but yes, you do. Have, yes, you but, do. But um, I think the... <laughs> I think it, you know you look at the way that it's actually spelt, and really it should it should be Nikon um, because you've only got one K, so yeah. um, so right. that, so that 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 makes it that way. And but th this is where things get a little bit odd uh, around because um, the way that we would say uh, uh, we say Nikkor, uh, so yeah. Nikon and Nikkor, um, really it, in in English it really should be Nikon and Nikkor. Uh, yeah, yeah. you got the, the two Ks give you that that right. that small I sound, but uh, for some reason we, you know, we 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 never quite get you it know, right. We stuck with it, aren't we? Really? You know, I think I think actually I think probably Aaron Reich had a lot to do with it because he probably mispronounced it. You know, I mean he <laughs> he, he well, was I a think, salesman. I think, he was. I, I think you're right. I think it should actually be Nikon, but it, we, we're we're stuck with it over here now. We have to say Nikon. <laughs> um, but well, you know, the, well, you remember the, the Zeiss lawsuit, of course, was because. Correct me if I'm wrong or not, but don't they say Zeiss Icon or is it Zeiss Icon? I'm, I'm not sure, but I know that people have commented that when we've, we've talked about how to say, in fact, I never get it right anyway, when we talk about the Pentax range of lenses on M42, which I'm not going to say because I'll get it wrong again. Um, yeah. But uh, somebody, somebody commented, a German comment, commented, well, now you've got that right, perhaps you're going to start saying Zeiss right, but you didn't actually tell us actually how to say Zeiss. So I don't know if it's Zeiss or something like that. I don't know. Um, yeah, but Icon, which is what Icon got into trouble with as far as the lawsuit went, is that Zeiss felt that the word Nikon was too close to their word icon, which is this only one letter difference, okay? Uh, although Nikon didn't design their name to actually compete with the icon uh, logo. But the thing is, is that I'm assuming, I've always thought that it's always been Zeiss icon, okay? Uh, as opposed to Zeiss icon. So if it is Zeiss icon is the accepted pronunciation for that name, then Nikon would sound just like it, which caused the, the lawsuit in Germany, which wasn't settled until the mid '60s, and uh, all the stuff that was all the Nikon products that were sold in Germany while the lawsuit was still in the courts had to be labeled Nikkor and not Nikon. I, I, I think you've got something there, and the, there's also. Uh, oh, it's, it's not. It's not German now. We're going to go over to Sweden, um, whereas uh, the world calls that uh, big blue shop IKEA. Um, yeah. Whereas over there yeah. it's IKEA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, the thing is, it, it's a lot of things like, okay, I'm Italian, all right? Uh, and so many times in my life, I've heard people use the term Italian, okay? So I say to them, I says, are you familiar with the country Italy? <laughs> they look at me, no, I've never heard of Italy. No, it's Italy. Italy. Okay, so if it's Italy, it's Italians. It's not Italians, okay? So and it, it's just it's just a thing. And it was people, they hear it from their parents, and they just keep saying it for their generation, they pass it along. But so many times, I'm called Italian. I say, no, I'm not Italian. I'm Italian, okay? I'm, my family <laughs> is from Italy, not from Italy, okay? So, you know, this happens all over the world. And I'm sure there's thousands of cases where we can come up with the, the same thing, you know, where things are just... If something's pronounced wrong long enough, it becomes part yeah. of the language. Yeah. You know? So there's a lot of words out there that are, you know, yeah. wrong. So uh, so that concludes the phonetics segment yeah. of the Classes Lens <laughs> podcast. But it actually is three. Just remember, it's three syllables. Three syllables. Three okay. syllables, I should say. Three syllables for a two-syllable word, which 
It's really weird. <laughs> Maybe we should include a, a link to how that um, actually looks. Maybe in the in the show notes or something, Simon. That that'd be great. I mean, if uh, I'd probably get something <laughs> across to right me, the cover, you know, it's right on the cover of my magazine. Yeah, yeah. See it, see it right there. Yeah. yeah, I have it. Yeah, I could give you a copy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right on the cover. I, I put that right in there because uh, I thought it was weird, and I, I've been on there on the cover since 1983. So the thing is, it's it's always been strange. And you know, I've been to Japan, and I've I'm flying in the airplane for 12, 15 hours. I'm looking at the the books to teach you how to speak Japanese, which of course is a waste of time. And um, you start reading this thing, and the, and the different ways they do things. It's so totally foreign to the way we do things that you're just never going to get it right. I mean, the way they pronounce things is just uh, totally different than what you would do. You know, like the name A-B-E, which is a last name in Japan, a very common last name, A-B-E, is not pronounced Abe. It's Abi. <laughs> so, you know, and it's just, it just goes on and on, just on and on. It's just they pronounce almost every letter in the word. It's just unbelievable. I've I've got one one more question. Um, yes, and uh, and I've got to say, I mean, as, as regular listeners would have noticed, I've hardly said anything in this episode. I've just pretty much sat back and uh, listened to, <laughs> listened to to the Mark and Bob show, um, and it's it's, it's 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 been great. And um, and Mark, I, I think you really need to be doing your own podcast. I'm not saying like get off my show. I'm saying like uh, you know, um, you know uh, I'd, 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 I think I'd, I think my wife would have a, uh, a a thing to say about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think there's there's some mileage in there, um, especially if you can uh, if you can get um, guests as good as Bob, then uh, you've 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 got a, a great podcast to to, to do there. Um, I, but, I I do want to uh, real quick. I do want to have a podcast with Cheyenne Morrison, though. I, that's oh, a guy yes. I want to I want to get on with at the same time as him. That could be interesting. The guy's a legend, <laughs> so um, I can totally understand that. Um, but I've I've got one one more yeah. question to Bob and uh, listen. Listen uh, to the podcast. I'm, I'm, I feel myself turning into a, a, a Nikon fanboy almost because it was like Nikon did this and they did that and they were yeah. better and and then uh, and then you were you were um, disparaging uh, several other other brands of cameras there and uh, I just just wondered, do you ever get into fights with uh, with the Leica Historical Society or the Zeiss or the no. uh, the, the Canon no. boys? Well, here's the thing. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I'm very good friends with Jim Logger. Okay, and um, real quick, Jim is the Robert. Jim Logger is the historian. Right, he's the the lights version of Robert. Okay, I've met him more than once, and I've got all his books, and he's got mine, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, believe it or not, I can't remember the exact year now. I think it's eighty-eight or eighty-nine, somewhere around there. The Leica Historical Society here in the United States was having their annual convention right here in the Chicago area. Okay, so. I get a phone call one day from Jim Locker. He says, hey, Bob, how would you like to speak at our convention? Now, at that time, I think I owned one Leica. Okay, but I had all his books. I've got 30 books on my I, I love Leicas. I love to read about them, and I've owned a few, but I've, I've got all the books. And um, I said, well, Jim, I said, you know, uh, what would I talk about? He says, well, think about it. See if you can come up with something that might be of interest to us. Then I said, well, uh, should I wear a bulletproof vest or anything like this? You know, and he says, no, don't worry about that. He says, he says, first of all, you're going to know half the people in the room, which I did. I, I did know a lot of people in the room um, who were also in the Nikons. There's, there's a lot of like people that also collect Nikons. But anyway, um, quality camera. They just collect quality cameras. And um, so I, I, I had a lot of people there I knew. And um, 
I said, okay, uh, I'll think of something. I came up with a, a subject. I came up with a, a subject that when I was done speaking with the slides and everything, everybody was just like sitting there with their mouths open because nobody had ever known about any of it, period. And even Lager looked at me, just shaking his head. What it was is, is Nikon had made a series of, this is like when the one wasn't even out yet, had made a series of screw mount prototypes. And I had pictures of them, okay? So I'm up there talking about Nikon cameras that were Leica screw mounts. And this was all new to this room of like 250 Leica collectors from all over the world. Edwin Putz was there. I mean, there's all kinds of people there. And uh, the guys from Lights were there. Kuhn, I think it was his name or something like that. But anyway, I'm talking about Nikons with Leica screw mounts, right? So it went over like, went over great. And everybody loved it. And I had a great time. And uh, so, no, I never got any problems with them. Um, I'll tell you another story. I've had at least over the years, at least a dozen of my members who are also members of the Leica Society. And one of them was a guy by the name of Tom Abrahamson who just died not too long ago. And Tom was one of the real movers and shakers at the Leica Historical Society. He was, had an article in almost every issue of their magazine. He's from Vancouver, Canada. He's actually Swedish. He's Swedish born, but he lives in Vancouver. And he joined our society, and he came to like three or four of the conventions. I'll never forget the first convention that he went to. We were standing out front on the sidewalk, and uh, he's looking at me. He says, you know, he said, uh, I'll tell you something about you Nikon guys. I go, what's that? He goes, you sure know how to have fun. I go, What? Well, you know, the like of conventions, he said, they're so stiff and formal and everybody's arguing and everything has to be run like a clock, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You feel like you're in school, right? You come here with you guys and you're enjoying yourselves. I said, yeah, that's what we do. This is a social event. He said, we're getting, the, you know, we're just a bunch of guys in the candy store all liking the same kind of candy, you know, so we're talking about it. And he, he said, he said, I, he, said I'm, he went back and he told all the Leica guys this. <laughs> so a lot of them got a hold of me later on in, in later years. He said, yeah, I said, hey, you like the Nikon guys have a good time. <laughs> and at our last convention here uh, in, in uh, October, uh, besides I had besides having uh, Stan Tamarkin, his son there, Dan, uh, uh, who's a, a big Leica people, he was there. But also there was a, a member uh, from Houston by the name of David Dodd who's a big Leica collector. And uh, and there was a lot of other Leica collectors. There was a Leica B in our room for sale. I mean, that, we had Leica stuff there. But anyway, he, um, he wrote a letter uh, that he actually sent to the Leica Historical Society, but he CC'd me with it. And he just went on and on about how fabulous our meetings are. <laughs> <laughs> and how well organized it was and how it came off flawlessly and how we all had a good time and this and that, you know, and everybody had, you know, everybody was smiles and all this kind of stuff. So uh, I guess I have a reputation of, of uh, the Nikon Society has a reputation of being like a, a counterbalance to the Nikon Society. 
you know, and I could say, you know, I, I've had the pleasure of being able to see, you know, portions of Robert's collection. And I mean, he's got a decent number of cannons. I know he's a huge fan of the KW Practina. Uh, he's got a few Yashikas too. So while, you know, N Nikon is his forte, you know, and it, it's, he's not exclusively, you know, limited to that one. Two brand. Minoxes right there on the counter. Yeah. <laughs> two Minoxes. I mean, you know, he's got a bunch of stuff too. So his interest is, isn't exclusive to one brand. No, I, I like quality. I've had Hasselblads. I've had Bronicas. I had a whole Bronica system at one time. I had a whole Pentax 6-7 system. Uh, I've had Leicas. I've had a Luftwaffe. I had all kinds of Leicas over the years. I just, not being a man of wealth, I would generally use my Leicas to trade for Nikon. So they went through my hands. But I've had Leicas. I would never turn my back. And I have Canons. I've got F1s. i got FTBs. Um, the F1 is a fabulous system. You know, I've got pentacons and and, and uh, hexacons. You know that the, the contacts D stuff. I, I I like them. I think the contacts was light years ahead of its time. Uh, the Practina was way ahead of its time. As a matter of fact, the Practina influenced the Nikon F. If you look at a Nikon F, it's a Practina in disguise. But anyway, that's another story. But um, another underrated camera system. Matter of fact, it was such a good system it broke the company. It was too expensive to make. But um, you know, and, and I've got Minolta's, uh, I've got Minoxes, you know. Uh, I like quality, uh, old cannons, bottom loaders. I've had a lot of cannons over the years. But um, anything that comes along that uh, I like to just own it for a while anyway, just to, to play with it and, and, and enjoy it. And I, I enjoy anything that's, you know, mechanically well made, done properly. And uh, so, you know, it's not just, I only collect Nikons because... I can't afford to collect everything. I just can't afford it. And uh, so I found out early on, I said, you know, I can either be a jack of all trades and know, know nothing. In other words, just have a collection of 20 different brands and really not have be very knowledgeable on any of them. Or I can concentrate on one item and become very knowledgeable and uh, cannot be fooled. You know, uh, and things like that. And other people will come to me. And that's what happened. So I stuck with the Nikons, which I cut my teeth on anyway. So it was just a natural thing. And um, I've been happy with them since, you know, 19. Actually, the first one was in 68. So um, that's a long time now, you know. So. Well, well, Bob, it's it's been absolutely fascinating listening to you. Um, thanks Thank for you. Coming, coming along. Um, sure. And um, we'd like you to do something for us in, in, in a moment Just as well, uh, because sure. uh, last week uh, we announced that we were going to give a lens away. And um, and I asked a, a, a question, and I'll... I'll uh, actually, I'll, I'll go, go through that now. Um, because then we'll... What I'd like you to do in a moment is to pull the winning name out of oh, okay. uh, out of a hat that uh, that uh, Mike has uh, prepared um, with all the winning names. And uh, the the question was, uh, and I posted a, a few photographs, and uh, it was a simple question: What was the lens I used uh, to take the photos? And uh, the clues were: It's fifty millimeters M forty two mount. It's it wasn't a Tessar design. Um, I may have given a couple of other clues in there as well. Well, that was that was generally it and um at the time when i actually asked the question um 
I wasn't entirely sure if we were going to get any uh, correct answers uh, because it was a possibility that it, the, the the question may have been a little bit too difficult. Oh yeah, that was the other, the other question. The other part of it was uh, in the name of the lens. Um, it had two, two digits as part of the name of the lens that had nothing to do with the aperture and nothing to do with the focal length. Um, so that was uh, pretty much the way to actually, well, one of the ways to track down uh, what the lens was. And we had, uh, I'm, I'm glad to say, we we had uh, quite a few uh, correct answers. In fact, we got eleven. Sorry, yeah, eleven correct answers, and uh, and we had wow. just, uh, which which quite surprised me. Um, so uh, well done for those, those people that yeah. uh, got it right, and uh, all your names are in the hat. And also, um, thank you for for those people who didn't quite get it right. Um, and uh, those those people are uh, oh dear, I don't know if I can pronounce this one. Uh, it looks like Sue Sumaya Mukherjee, uh, Paul Friday, Jennifer Carter, and Bob Matter. Um, I'm sorry, you you guys are not in the hat. Um, and the people that are in the hat are Steve New, Paul Grief, Nigel Cliff, Stephen Starr, otherwise known as Stigger the Dump, uh, from on Instagram and uh, Twitter, um, Jack Schwadron, Albert Straub, hopefully I've said that right, uh, Kevin Shanahan, Jonas Lundstrom, Rakesh Nar, Brett Dalton, and Mike Farley. So uh, all your names are in the hat, and uh, it'll be great if you could pull a winning name out for us. Uh, all right, he's got it in his hands. I've already I, I printed them out on strips of paper and folded them, so he's doing it right now. Okay. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, if, you, if you're still there, Bob, you're not close enough to the microphone for us to hear you. Nigel Cliff. Nigel Cliff. Congratulations. Well done, Nigel. <laughs> so, uh, yep, Ni Nigel uh, gets 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 the lens. So, uh, um, I'm not going to uh, contact you directly. I'm going to let you uh, hear the uh, the result when you're – actually, I think I know when you'll be listening to it. You tend to go on a long drive on a – on a on a on a Monday or a Tuesday, so you'll be driving in the car and you'll get to hear this. So you've, that, that that should make you happy. So once you've um, once you've uh, heard that, Nigel, if you want to get in touch with me, and then we'll make the arrangements to get this lens over to you. So uh, well done to Nigel, and thank you to everybody that's taken part. Um, oh, and by the way, I just realised I didn't actually name what the lens was, um, and uh, the lens is a Helios seventy seven M dash four. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's 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 an uncommon lens. I mean, there, I'm sure there were many thousands of these lenses that were actually made once upon once upon a time in the in the uh, former Soviet Union, but relatively few of them actually made it over to the UK, um, and and probably even less uh, managed to make it over to uh, to the US. So it's quite an uncommon lens, and uh, I've enjoyed using it. So uh, I'm sure Nigel's going to make good use of that. So uh, thank you again, Nigel. All right. Okay. Um, and then one more thing that I just want to quickly go through before we say goodbyes and any shout outs and things like that. And uh, that's to thank those people that have uh, donated to the show um, via uh, coffee. That's ko-fi, uh, coffee.com. And if you go onto that and then search Classic Lenses Podcast, then uh, if you want to, you can buy us a coffee. Uh, and right. the people that have done that in the last week. Uh, we've got uh, James Thorpe. Uh, thank you again. That's uh, James actually does this as a um, 
recurring uh, thing. So uh, thank you very much, James. Um, then, as mentioned earlier, Cheyenne Morrison um, say, and he says, the "Happy anniversary to the three to the three wise monkeys. Thank you for all your hard work and best of luck for next year." So uh, thank you, Cheyenne. Um, <laughs> Stig Star, Stig of the Dump, Stephen Star, who was one of the uh, the people that asked that got uh, their uh, answer was correct, but unfortunately it didn't get pulled out. Uh, but he's uh, just say he's just put the note in here to say uh, just seeing if you guys are open to a plain good old bribery um, because I'm, I'm buying you coffee in the hope that you will give us a shout out about the Mersey Meetup Analog Photo Walk, uh, which is taking place in Liverpool on the 9th of February, um, and there are details on photowalk.me um, I actually did this last time um, in it's probably back at the end of autumn in Liverpool and I had a really good time and I plan on going to this one as well um, so um, yeah that's a that's a, a good one to go but don't forget that is a analog photo walk so uh, you know it's you need to turn up with the film camera there um, but go on to photowalk.me uh, for details there and actually while I'm on the subject of that if you also go on to photowalk.me you'll find details of the photo walk that Nigel Stanley is doing in London. I think you're meeting at Liverpool Street Station on the 20th, uh, but he's doing a photography with classic lenses uh, walk down there. So you can go with your digital cameras as long as you're using old lenses and take part in that one. So uh, that'll be a, a good walk. And I wish I could have gone to that one, but I'm sorry, I can't. But, uh, you know, please join Nigel on that one because that sounds like that's going to be a good one. Um, and... Uh, uh, two more to do, Nigel Cliff, uh, the winner. Uh, <laughs> um, this is why we did it uh, uh, using an independent person to pull things out of the hat. <laughs> well, well tell, tell Nigel, though, there is, a, there is a $10 royalty for pulling his name. So. <laughs> um, and he's uh, commenting on uh, last week's show saying, well improvised, uh, guys, another quality show. So uh, thank, thank you there, Nigel. And uh, Camilla Lee, um, donated to us as well and said I really enjoy your podcast and keep up the good work so um, thank you Camilla so um, that's that's pretty much it from uh, for the show uh, Bob and Mike yes. um, Bob first perhaps how can people uh, to find you I don't know if you what kind of a internet presence you have um, okay. in the world well my, my email address uh, is just my last name R-O-T-O-L-O-N-I at msn.com um, under on Facebook I'm just if you just type in my name I pop up just you know Robert Rotoloni I pop he up. is a member too of the vintage camera collectors group too oh, so yeah. I know yeah. all of us participate in that he, he does respond occasionally the, the Nikon Historical Society um, you want to hand me one of those what? magazines in front of you Mike oh I mean, one of my, I, I do have a website for that. Where would Although, it be? Right in front of you there, where, where you see they're standing up. But I have. Uh, oh, okay. Here you go. Or getting a hold of me on a, on the email will work too. But uh, the society itself uh, has an email address, which I don't memorize. So I don't use it. But anyway, uh, our email address oh. is mine. Oh, I should take it back. It is mine. I just use it. Roll along at msn.com. <laughs> um, we are on Facebook. We are on Facebook, just under Nikon Historical Society, um, and we do have a website, uh, although it's probably fallen into disuse because I don't know what happened to the fellow who was running it for me. But it was just uh, NikonHistoricalSociety.com. 
uh, on, on, but if you go to my my email, you can I'll answer any questions anybody has, and uh, I get 50, 60, 80 emails a day. So, but we are on Facebook also, and uh, we have members all over the world. I have quite a few members in England, as a matter of fact. Uh, a couple of people I, I know really well. I don't know, I know more than two, but these come to mind right away. Do you know John Millam? No, 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 no. How about Paul Henry von Hasbrook? No. I mean, the, Eng- England is quite a big place, though, to be fair. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, they, uh, Paul Henry lives in, in London, and uh, Willem lives in Didcot. And, um, but I know others all over all over the island, really, but uh, those are just two that popped in my head. Yeah. But, no, th- th- thank, you, thank you for that, Bob. And, uh, and Mike, how can people uh, follow your work? I have the easiest uh, website to remember. It's just my name. It's MikeEckman.com. Um, I've had a official Facebook page for MikeEckman.com, too. Um, I've only recently started updating it, though, so I'm trying to have more of a presence there as well. But um, you can uh, contact me through my site. Uh, send me an email through the Contact Me page. Um, and, and I'm also an administrator in the Vintage Camera Collectors group on Facebook as well. So I, I participate on that uh, usually daily. Okay, and uh, finally me. Um, I have uh, a website which is simonforsterphotographic.co.uk. Um, also, if you Simon Forster Photograph, you can find me on uh, what's it called Instagram. That's it. I'm also on Twitter as Simon Four, um, and like Carl and myself, as uh, like Carl and Johnny, I should say, because uh, I'm not Johnny. Uh, we're uh, we can be regularly found in the Facebook group Photography with Classic Lenses. Um, finally, I want to thank Kevin McLeod who provides our music, uh, Octo Blues uh, from Incompetech. Co.uk, and I hope you've enjoyed uh, this week's podcast. I'm so happy also to say that next week um, we will have Matthew Duclos. Uh, he will be coming back, uh, so we will finally have that conversation about the, uh, the Zeiss 0.7 planar and uh, and lots of other things and uh, cine lenses and uh, so on. So that's going to be next week. So really looking forward to that. So again. Thank you very much for Mike and for Bob for being with us again. Yeah, that's fun. Thanks, Simon. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great to have you. So, um, yep. Yeah, so, I hope you can join us all again next week. And uh, that's it. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.